January 6th, 1948, Los Angeles, California. We're in the audience to see Lucille Ball star in a touring production of Elmer Rice's Dream Girl. She was talked into the role by friend and Broadway star, June Havoc. The show was a success. Ball made $2,000 per week. New York ended 1947 with the greatest fall of snow it's ever seen, over 25 inches in about 16 hours. The troupe was on the road during the massive post-1947 Christmas blizzard. Half were sick by the time they got to Los Angeles. The show's producers ran out of money. The production was soon canceled. I wanted to do a Broadway show. I was wishing it was a little better, but we had great business throughout, so I shouldn't complain, I guess, except that it almost killed me. But I love the stage. I love an audience. It's just that if you get stuck in a hit, it's two years out of your life at least, you know. And that's not a very nice thing to say, stuck in a hit. But that's exactly what happens. There's no other life. By January of 1948, more than 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Movie attendance bombed. Young parents were staying home with their children. Americans bought 500 million less film tickets in a single year. Lucy was 36. Her movie roles were being taken by younger stars in an industry with a tanking box office. It was a good time to get out. Her eight-year-old marriage with Desi Arnaz was perpetually in trouble. She wanted to spend more time in California, and radio interfered less with a normal home life. Lucy was beautiful, and she was lovable. She was a great entertainer and a great personality. She was simply in the class by herself. You said she was in a class by herself. Yeah, she was. What put her in a class by herself? Well, first, she knew her to do comedy better than any woman I've ever known. She's really amazing that way. And she's damn attractive, more attractive than most women by far. And bright, good company. I just thought she was a very special person. Head of CBS, William S. Paley, wanted Ball to star in a situation comedy based on the book Mr. and Mrs. Cougat. Lucy wanted Desi to co-star. Paley refused. We, you know, we wanted to work together. Yeah. So she says, I want Desi to play the husband. Well, the husband in the radio show, well, is a tall, blonde, blue-eyed vice president of a bank or something. I, I'd never be able to get away with that part, you know. <laughs> CBS West Coast director of programming, Harry Ackerman, assured Lucy that if the show did well, it could be transferred to TV. She relented and signed with the network. The new radio series was developed in the spring of 1948. Richard Denning would co-star. When it launched, Ball's future in show business seemed uncertain. By decade's end, her and Eve Arden were considered the nation's funniest women, thanks to their CBS radio shows. The series would be called My Favorite Husband and help pave the way for the most popular television show of the 1950s, I Love Lucy. What's it like to have owned the studio that you worked in as a showgirl? Did you plan that? Can you imagine walking around RKO as a stock curl and saying, someday I'll own all this? <laughs> so ridiculous. And I get like that when they ask me. Then I cool it and I say, now really. Black coffee loves a hand-me-down brew. 
Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 100. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we focus on the radio career of Lucille Ball, arguably the most famous comedienne of the 20th century. She rose through the ranks in New York as a model, before a small role in Eddie Cantor's Roman Scandals brought her to Hollywood in 1933. She gained prominence. When the 1940s began, Ball was a B-film actress known for playing the other woman, as she gained critical respect for both her dramatic and comedic ability. She insisted that her and Desi Arnaz made the perfect on-screen duo. It led to a revolution in the way TV was shot and produced in the 1950s, all under their company, Desi Lu. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Julie London's sultry version of Black Coffee, a fitting backtrack for Lucille Ball's life in the 1940s. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Starring Jack Haley, it's Lucille Ball, Virginia Battle, Artie Arbach, Ted Fiorito and his orchestra, and the happy Wonder Bakers. In 1938, comic Jack Haley was on the air for Continental Bakers with The Wonder Show. Haley was an able MC, perhaps best known as the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. I was doing, uh, I believe it was Wonder Bread. No, Continental, Continental Bakery, yeah. I was doing that at that time. I'd worked for National Dairy. I had a show for them a couple of years. Was that Seal Test? Yes, Seal uh-huh. Test. Uh-huh. We had quite good ratings, you know. Mm-hmm. That fall, Lucille Ball joined the cast, which included Gail Gordon. It was their first time working together. The duo formed a friendship that lasted for over a half century. It's, uh, it's Uncle Gail's what pot for busy housewives. Sounds glamorous. Well, Lucille, here's your question. It's very interesting and full of laughs. Just answer yes or no, Lucille. Should any woman be satisfied with bread that isn't absolutely fresh and hasn't the three advantages of better texture, better fragrance, better flavor? Now, think hard. Well, I'd say no. You're right. Absolutely right. Since you can get all four advantages for the same money, why put up with any other bread? Uh, Now, Virginia... I like comedies because I am a great believer in the therapeutic value of laughter. There's so much sadness in this world today, so much horror, so much of the mean and the cruel, that I think we need, as a nation, we need good, healthy, honest laughter. And when I hear an audience laugh, I get a great physical sigh of relief in my whole soul because it's something that 
I think is so important, and I love to hear it. And when I can get an honest laugh, I think that I'm doing my job, at least in my small way. Comedy is the jam and the, the little bit of sauce that is put on the viands of life that gives it a little bit of aftertaste and a lovely memory. Ball had broken through on screen the year prior, when the 26-year-old starred in Stage Door opposite Ginger Rogers. Lucy's role as Judith Canfield allowed her to demonstrate her flair for comedy. The RKO brass took notice. Her appearances with Haley led to more radio work with Phil Baker. She was one of Hollywood's busiest starlets. Between 1938 and 1939, Lucy starred in 12 films, opposite the Marx Brothers, Jack Oakey, Lee Bowman, Richard Dix, Chester Morris, and Kay Kaiser. Maxwell House Coffee presents Good News of 1940. Good evening, everybody. This is Edward Arnold, and on behalf of the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, I welcome you to an hour of entertainment brought to you each week from Hollywood, starring Fanny Bryce, Hanley Stafford, Lou Holtz, Connie Boswell, Benny Rumert, and Meredith Wilson. Plus tonight's guests of honor, John Bowles and Lucille Ball. Oh, hello, Meredith. Hello, Eddie. It's holiday week here in Hollywood, just the same as it is all over the country. And we've got a grand show tonight to bring you all some holiday cheer. We're going to open with a song from the picture we previewed last week, Gulliver's Travels. And it's the kind of a song that really makes you glad you live in a land where Christmas can still mean something. It's called We're All Together Now, and I think maybe it's time we get started. Gee, uh, that's what I've been thinking. Oh, listen, you, you rusty, get away from me and play, will you? Good News was the first major sponsored collaboration between a movie studio and a broadcasting network. Maxwell House sponsored the series for 25 k a week. MGM produced and made top stars available. It was a variety program with stories, songs, and intimate glimpses of Hollywood with its hair down. One of the series' features, Backstage at the Movies, let listeners in on executive conferences. Sometimes listeners would get audio tours of MGM star dressing rooms. Paramount and Warner Brothers began laying plans to follow suit, but by the time the show was a month old, critics were complaining that something was lacking. By 1939, there were guest hosts, and Connie Boswell was one of the main singers. I did study cello when I was quite a little tot, about four years old. But I didn't study any of the other instruments, but I loved music so dearly, and I come from a musical family. But I love the piano and guitar and all instruments, so the rest of the instruments that I play, Lee, I taught myself. On December 28, 1939, Lucille Ball was the guest star. She was in New York for the holidays to promote her new film, Five Came Back, co-starring Chester Morris. When it opened, the Rialto went on a 24-hour schedule to accommodate the crowds. You know, uh, I, how can I stay sore at a guy that makes as little sense as you? That's right. Yeah. You know, I think I'll, I'll make just one, one New Year's resolution, Meredith. Uh, what? I, I'm going to tolerate you. Gee, thanks a lot, Eddie. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> now, get back on the stand because I don't want to break my resolution just yet. 
Peculiar fellow, ain't he? I don't know the man. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet one of the most fetching young ladies who has come to Hollywood in my time. Lucille Ball is beautiful, gay, and charming. You've probably seen her in RKO's new K. Kaiser picture. That's right, you're wrong. And you'll see her again in The Marines Fly High with Richard Dix, which was produced at the same establishment. At this moment, however, she's here in person. Miss Lucille Ball. <laughs> Lucille, it's a, it's indeed a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Eddie. And Eddie, before I forget, there's one person on this program I'm dying to meet. Well, I'd be glad to be of some service. He's a musician. A musician? Well, uh, Eddie, what are we waiting for? Uh, Meredith, if you're the fellow she wants to meet, I won't tolerate you another minute. Lucille, break it to me gently. Come on. Eddie, I want to meet Lalganga. You mean uh, Meredith's Hindu oboe player? Yes. Shucks. <laughs> well, now you're cooking with gas. I ain't whistling Dixie, son. I'm going to quit tolerating that fellow. Drat him. <laughs> Lucille, you can meet Lalganga, but there's just one catch. Oh, the name is Ball, Eddie. I'm a great catcher. Well, can you speak Hindu? Pitch another one that's high and outside. Well, you can't talk to Lil Ganga till Lou Holtz gets here. He's the official interpreter. Oh, shucks. Can I even holler to him? Sure, go ahead. Hi, Lil. Oh, Buona. Oh. <laughs> now I've got to meet him. I'm going out to look for Holtz. <laughs> well, I'll have to get a turban. I'm not getting anywhere around here. Uh, say, Connie, do you still love me? Eganda protasi. Good heavens, you too? Bueno. Now, cut it out. I can't stand it. Uh, what are you going to sing, dear? Stop. It's wonderful. Fine. Let's have it. Stop, stamp on your motor car. While Lucy was staying in New York, one of the studio executives suggested she see the hit Lorenz Hart Broadway musical, Too Many Girls. RKO had purchased the screen rights. When she went, she found herself attracted to the show's 22-year-old star, a Cuban singer named Desi Arnaz. In 1940, Lucille Ball was cast as Connie Casey in RKO's film version of Too Many Girls. One day early in production, she walked past the actor playing Manuelito. He was taken by her beauty. The actor was Desi Arnaz. They were soon dating. He was born Desiderio Alberto Arnaz de Acha III on March 2, 1917 in Santiago, Cuba. His father was a doctor of pharmacology and the mayor for 10 years. His mother, Dolores, was a Bacardi rum Harris. Desi grew up in the lap of luxury, a 
until revolution confiscated his family's fortune and imprisoned his father. The Arnez family lost everything. You were in Cuba at the time that they had Cuban revolution and you had to yeah, something get out of Cuba? Very rare down there, you know, a revolution. <laughs> but, uh, I was down there way before Fidel Castro during the Batista thing. My father was the mayor of my hometown for <coughs> 10 years. My uncle was the chief of police. We had that town pretty well. Really <laughs> my great-grandfather was appointed mayor of my hometown by Queen Isabella. Where the hell am I going? And, uh, she sure is. Yeah. May, may she rest in peace, yes. That's your great-grandfather. When his father was finally released from the Moro Castle, he decided to move the family to Florida. Desi arrived penniless. He lived in an unheated rat-infested warehouse. He found work cleaning bird cages and driving a banana truck. He later graduated from high school in Miami, and in 1936, he joined a rumba band in Miami Beach. Band leader Xavier Cougat caught his act and hired him. I was with Cougat, and even though he didn't pay much money, I had to steal <laughs> bonds and salary at the Waldorf, but I learned a hell of a lot about the band business. And uh, the, whole, the whole situation... Would you that... work under the name of Babby Lane or something? Yes, sir. <laughs> Between... Uh, Abby Lane and Miguelito Valdez, I was in there. And the Strand, the, <laughs> yeah. the Strand. The Strand, When he came out in the white suit, it was magnificent. Weren't you partly responsible for starting the conga craze? Yeah, that's another accident. I quit Cougar because, like I said, I couldn't uh, eat well no. working with him. And uh, <laughs> I went back to Miami. Cookie's not coming off too good yeah. so far. But, but uh, I said I learned a lot from him, though. Yeah. By New Year's Eve, 1937, Desi had struck out on his own at 19. A New York agent spotted him, and he was soon cast in the Broadway version of Too Many Girls, followed by the film version, which opened on October 8, 1940. Lucy and Desi were now an item, but his five-year contract with RKO forbid him from marrying. RKO wanted them to tone down their relationship. They refused. Lucy stayed in Hollywood to film Harold Lloyd's A Girl, A Guy, and A Gob. The studio sent Desi on the road to Chicago. He was soon headlining with a traveling band. When the pair reconnected for Thanksgiving in New York, they decided they couldn't be separated for an entire month ever again. Two days later, they eloped. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow.
I hate to say it because you're you're a legend, and I don't say that to any in your own lifetime. You know? Why do you, you know? hate to say it? Well, to, because <laughs> does it, it embarrass you? you? Don't want to be. I I would love to be, but I bet it doesn't embarrass you a little bit. No. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it as an embarrassment. I thought of it as a compliment. Yeah, a big compliment, but also when you walk out and everyone stands up. Do you ever think maybe... Well, that's not embarrassing. That's wonderful. Yeah, but... Do you ever think, how can I top this? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, the only thing I say that about is how can I ever top what Vivian and Bill and, and Desi and I did in the I Love Lucy. Yeah. Oh, well, the classics. That's the only thing. California, the makers of old gold cigarettes present the Comedy Theater. The only radio program that brings you every week the greatest stars in the greatest comedies. Tonight's play, RKO's A Girl, A Guy, and a Gob, starring George Murphy and Lucy O'Ball. And here is the director of the Old Gold Comedy Theater, Mr. Harold Lloyd. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we on the Old Gold Comedy Theater make a habit of defying tradition. For example, in casting tonight's play, A Girl, A Guy, and a Gob, instead of doing the usual thing and getting the stars of the film version, we're trying a new approach. We've got the stars of the film version. And uh, here they are, George Murphy and Lucille Ball. Good evening, and to continue this remarkable coincidence, the director of tonight's show was the original producer of the picture, Mr. Harold Lloyd. And to continue, George, you and I were signed to play the roles on the Old Gold Comedy Theater on Sunday, February 11th, and here we are. Amazing, Lucille. Astounding. Unbelievable. Uh, Lucille, I hope that you get as big a kick out of playing the role of Dorothy Duncan tonight as you did the role you played in the forthcoming Metro-Golden-Mayer production, Without Love. How about you, George? Are you ready to play the role of Coffee Cup the Sailor? Oh, boy, am I. I've been wearing tight pants for two weeks. <laughs> How about you, Lucille? Harold, take it easy. <laughs> Heaven help a sailor on a night like this. <laughs> well, let's get to work. Uh-oh, I forgot one thing. There's another guy in this picture. His name is Stephen Herrick of the firm of Martin and Herrick. He's taking his girl to a concert in Carnegie Hall, where a famous pianist has drawn an enthusiastic audience. And wouldn't you know it? After Lucy and Desi were married, she went back to work on Harold Lloyd's RKO production of A Girl, A Guy, and a Gob, which debuted on March 14, 1941. It starred Lucille with George Murphy as Coffee Cup and Edmund O'Brien as Stephen Herrick. 
Lucy got positive reviews for the comedy about an unlikely friendship and love triangle. Call the manager. What do you want to call the manager for? He's heard the music before. He has. A radio adaptation was broadcast for the Old Gold Comedy Theater on February 11, 1945. So now will you please go away? I will not go away. Oh, you won't. Coffee cup, hand me my bag. Oh, now wait a minute, Dottie. Wait a minute. Don't get hasty. I said give me my bag. Okay, okay, honey. Here you are. Thank you. Mister, you asked for this. Ooh! Oh, my head. Gee, without a bomb sight. Really? Such common people. Stephen, we're going to see the manager. Who do they think they are? Well, I don't know for sure, Dottie, but look, uh, maybe maybe I ought to explain Paris something to stuff you. Paris stuffed shirts, see. that's what. Uh, Coffee cup, hmm? you did buy these tickets, didn't you? Well, uh, not, not exactly. <gasps> you see, uh, a friend of mine came up and he gave them to me. Yeah, that was how it happened. A friend oh. gave them to me and... Coffee cup, even I don't believe that. Well, I don't either. If you want to know the truth... I found him in the street. Oh, coffee cup, no. Yes, I did. I I've never him. been so embarrassed in my life. Come on, let's get out of here. Well, that's okay with me. Oh, you you want to know something, Donnie? For my dough, Count Basie's got it all with this guy, Josie Eterby. It's not Josie, it's Jose. In Spanish, J is pronounced like H. Oh, well, let's go. Where to? Let's go to a ham session. I'm a hitter bug. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> coffee cup. Bend your head down, dear. Oh, no, Come on, come oh, on. do I have to? Yes. All right. Oh, hey, you must have got a new compact. Good morning, Mr. Herrick. Where's Miss Comstock? Please find Miss Comstock and tell her to come in. Yes, Mr. Herrick. All right, Miss Duncan, this is it. Now, be careful what you do and say. He's in a bad mood this morning, and he doesn't know he's getting a new secretary. All right, go on in. Take a letter, Miss Comstock. Uh, Mr. Herrick, Miss Comstock. Shh, uh, I'm trying to come. Uh, you! Uh, hello, I'm Miss Duncan. Where's your bag? Or is that our new secret weapon? Oh, please, I, I'd, I'd like to explain about last night. I didn't... There's uh... nothing to explain. Oh, but I'm afraid you got the wrong impression. Impression? It's... Is this lump on my head look like an impression? <laughs> what was in that handbag anyway, a rock? No, but it might have been a good idea. The incident's closed. Now, will you please get out? Where's Miss Comstock? Miss Comstock eloped. She can't do that to me. Want to bet? Get out. I'm going to get out. I wouldn't work for you if it was the last job on earth. I'd take a pail and mop and crawl on my hands and knees before I'd work for a, 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 a midget-minded stuffed shirt like you. Is that all you have to say? No, that's not all I have to say. I was in the wrong last night, but I didn't know it at the time. I gave Coffee Cup, he, he's my boyfriend, his real name is Claudius Cup, and that's why he changed it. I gave him the money to buy the tickets, and he lost the money on a horse. He was trying to get enough for us to have a honeymoon, you see, and, well, I, I didn't know he'd found yours, the tickets, I mean. I didn't find out until I was... All right, all right, Miss Duncan. You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. <laughs> well, let's get on with this letter, shall we? To, uh, Mr. Daniel Carter, post The Old Gold Comedy Theater was an NBC attempt to replicate the success of CBS's Lux Radio Theater. It debuted on October 29th, 1944. Silent film star and producer Harold Lloyd introduced condensations of movie comedies. No, no, no kidding. I'm telling you, it's beautiful, Eddie. Ah, oh, you're just saying that, coffee cup. No, honest, I'm not. That's a nuts. You know, that's the most beautiful one I ever saw in my whole life, except, except maybe one I saw in Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Hey, what are you 
two gobs mooning about. Hey, hiya, Dot. You're late. I know. I had to take the one o'clock lunch hour. Who's your boyfriend? Him? Oh, that's Eddie. He's a friend of mine off the ship. Dot, look, I want you to see something. He's got the most beautiful tattoo you ever saw in your life. Oh. Two rose-colored battleships on a sea of azure green with a red sun setting behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right here. See it? Hey, this is in public. Oh, he's not bashful. Go ahead, show her. Take a look at that, huh? Ain't that a honey? Oh, boy. Dot, why can't I... The answer is no, coffee cup. Just one battleship? No. Maybe a light cruiser? No. What about a rowboat? No. <laughs> All right, I'll settle for a pair of water rings. No tattoos. Oh, okay. That's what I was afraid of. Always taking a joy out of life. Okay, Eddie, show her how you can grow. How he can what? Grow. Eddie grows four inches right in front of you. Are you kidding? Why, sure, Eddie. Here, stand over there against the wall like that. Yeah. Like this? Yeah, that's right, this that's I right. Now, look, see. Dot, look now. You see, he's only as high as that birdcage yeah, in the window. Yeah. Now, you keep your eye on him and watch him grow. Hey, what's the gag? Well, my friend here, he grows four inches. You kidding, bud? That's what I said. Yeah. What do you know, Phil? This guy claimed his friend can grow four inches. Yeah, I'm about to bust a gallus laughing. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, take a look at this. He's already grown an inch. He was only as high as that birdcage when he started. Hey, that's right. He is growing. He must be at least an inch taller already. Sure, Excuse he's me, please. Right I... Say, what's all the crown? That tailor, his friend claims he can grow four inches. <laughs> four inches? Yeah. Why, that's ridiculous. I'll say it's no, ridiculous. No, it's not. He... Oh, Mr. Herrick, hello. Hello, Miss Duncan. Oh, this is Coffee Cup. Coffee Cup, this is my boss, Mr. Harry. Hiya, hello. boss. And uh, this other sailor here is Eddie, my pal. Uh, how do you do? Acey doocy. Go ahead, go ahead and show him. Show him how you can grow four inches, yeah, Eddie. Go on. You mean Eddie. right in front of me? Smack dab. Just watch me. Now watch, his heels are flat on the ground. Do nothing phony about this. He's already grown two inches. Yeah, it's a fake. Oh, right. what do you mean it's a fake? He was only as tall as a bird cage when he started. He's two inches taller now. And five bucks says it's as tall as he gets. Five bucks, is it, yeah. huh? Coffee cup. Oh, my dough's in my other pants. If I only had my other pants oh, on. Oh, Mr. Herrick, I hate to do this, but would you let me have five dollars, please? Yeah. Five dollars? Yeah. Why, oh, yes, gladly. Okay, you. Our money's up. Where's yours? You're holding stakes, Mr. Herrick. Hey, yeah, five smackers. You're, sure, you're, sure, you're sure you can do it, Eddie? Remember that time in Shanghai? Four and a half, ain't you? Yeah, but you were drunk that night. Where's the mark? Right here. That's right, mark it. Yeah, hey, yeah, you got a pencil it. or something, Mr. Harry? Oh, yes, yes I have. Okay, uh, brother, you hold it right here and mark the spot. Well, I... All right, uh, but... Atta boy, Eddie. All right, now turn it on. Right, you got the on. mark. Come on, Eddie boy. He's up an inch. Uh, he'll up never an make it. Yeah, I'm not left the dude with a pair of an inch more, Eddie. Come on, kid, a quarter of an inch. Atta boy, you're making it. Yay! Hey, you let that pencil slip. I give you my word. Hey, but tell me I want my dough. Oh, a welcher, eh? keep off my feet. Yeah, that's a pretty big order, Charlie, with feet like them. Oh, is that so? Yes, and if you don't like it. What are you going to do about it? This! <laughs> oh, you missed me. Come on, come on. 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 Why, you big lug hitting the defenseless man. You just wait. I'll show you. Yeah. Hey, Dot. Dot, where's the boss? Right here. That big lug knocked him out. And who knocked out the big lug? I did. I put a rock in my purse. Oh, honey, you think of everything, don't you? NBC programmed the series Sunday nights at 10.30 for East Coast audiences. Although ratings peaked at 12.4 in December, by April, the ratings had shrunk to under 7. It was canceled after June 10, 1945. 
The same month, a girl, a guy, and a gob opened in March of 1941, Lucy and Desi bought property in the San Fernando Valley, building a ranch. They nicknamed it Desi Lou. Their business manager, Andrew Hickox, handled their affairs. They each paid for their own personal expenses, contributing a set amount each week to their nest egg. However, things weren't all rosy at Desilu. There were deep differences between them. Desi was a young romantic who lived in the moment. She was six years older and it bothered her. Lucy came up from the bottom within the entertainment industry. It made her a strong-willed, self-reliant, careful planner. Finally, I got so hungry, I, I decided to become a model so I could eat. And I became a good model. But models aren't supposed to eat. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never did do that, right? But I was so thin and so tall, it didn't matter. I didn't eat too much. World is certain. I found out how to go to Needix and slip into a stool, grab the nickel tip and grab the half a donut someone left, and put the nickel down again and say, may I have a cup of coffee? That and how to... Uh, to confiscate leftover food when you were taken out to dinner at night. RKO placed Desi under a three-film contract. The couple hoped to work together. Lucy soon found out she was pregnant. When the U.S. entered World War II at the end of 1941, Film star Carol Lombard traveled home to Indiana for a bond rally with her mother and husband Clark Gable's press agent Otto Winkler. In a single evening, Lombard raised over $2 million in defense bonds. Her party was scheduled to return to Los Angeles by train. She wanted to get home faster. Her mother and Winkler were both afraid of flying and insisted they follow the original travel plans. Lombard suggested they flip a coin. They agreed, and she won the toss. Carol Lombard was one of Lucille Ball's closest friends. Death takes the controls, and with awful suddenness, a luxury airliner crashes into remote mountains such as these. Out of a mist of uncertainty, searchers report sudden death on a snow-clad peak near Las Vegas, Nevada. Twenty-two victims, including 15 army flyers and Carol Lombard and her mother. On January 16, 1942, 22 passengers boarded TWA Flight 3 en route to Los Angeles from Las Vegas. But just minutes after takeoff, the plane was at an elevation of almost 8,000 feet when it slammed into the Potosi Mountains. Everyone on board was killed instantly. Lucy and Desi were devastated. She soon had a miscarriage in her third month of pregnancy. To help distract her, Desi brought home a bunch of farm animals for the ranch. Clark Gable often visited in need of his own emotional support from the couple. Before long, Lucy wanted to go back to work. Do either of you have a desire to do serious stuff? I don't see why comedians should. It always implies that you're not really doing anything good until you do serious stuff. And, I've never uh, had that, have you? No. My mother has done some fantastic serious things, though. Some movies have made me cry. Mm -hmm. They've been so very dramatic. Did you oh, ever see couple. Big Street? Big Street. With Henry no. Fonda when she oh, played no. that lady that was crippled with the little dog. And... I didn't see it. He, oh! Yeah, he pushed her all the way to Miami. And just walking. Wheelchair. Wheelchair. Oh. 
<laughs> he did? It was yeah? terrible. You will watch that oh. and like it. She was... She was so mean. It's been rerun for 20 years on the two. And I cry every time. <laughs> One day, Walter Winchell introduced Lucy to Damon Runyon. Runyon was taken with her. He wanted Lucy to star opposite Henry Fonda as Gloria Lyons, crippled showgirl in the big street. having high blood pressure for a day and you can't even get near with less than a million? I know that, Violet. What are you sending her flowers for? And that's Runyon's Big Street, the Broadway of Little Pink's The Busboy, who silently worshipped a Broadway dog, who nursed her, fed her, cared for her when she was broke, and all the time she had her eyes on bigger guys and wouldn't wipe her feet on it. You got a job? What kind of a job? As what? Busboy. Busboy. Cleaning tables, filling glasses, making with the butter. But you're not even a good busboy. Louis, the headway dishes, you got two left feet. The New York Herald Tribune and Life magazine both raved about her performance. She was suddenly considered a serious dramatic actress. But Lucy was now 31 and felt RKO had no big plans for her. The cops has grabbed pinks for larceny. What'd he ever steal? Nothing except on that dress and them rocks you got on. Late 1942, she left the studio and signed with MGM for $1,500 per week. Desi left RKO with her. You can use this now. No, no, that's a friendship ring, and nothing's ever gonna break up our friendship. All right. We'll always be pals, huh? If you ever need anything, just SOS. Gee, thanks, May. If you ever in a jam, here I am. If you ever need a pal, I'm your gal. Signing with MGM gave Lucille a chance to work with Red Skelton and Gene Kelly in the musical comedy Do Barry Was a Lady. Red and Lucy became good friends. While Lucy was filming, Desi was away on a USO tour. When he got back, he was cast in Bataan, a stark war drama in which 13 soldiers are picked off one by one by Japanese in the jungle. It proved to be a sign of things to come. Desi was drafted into the army in February of 1943. Well, you consider it now. There were many of us engaged in it. It was. It is hard to explain to persons who have never uh, utilized it as an evening's entertainment as we in our time did. But I suppose it was as avidly followed and it caused as much social conversation and certainly did, I suspect, rather less harm than the popular one that might as well be nameless now, in which I also make a living. It was a a very rich theatrical form that has not been matched, I think, in many aspects by anything that has come later. Roma Wines present... Suspense! 
Roma Wines, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Uh, your health, senor. Roma Wines toast the world. The wine for your table is Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is the man in black, here for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Tonight in Hollywood, Roma Wines bring you the MGM star, Miss Lucille Ball. Between films, Lucy began to carve out a second career on the radio. She appeared on Duffy's Tavern, Abbott and Costello, the Screen Guild Theater, and Suspense. Her first appearance was opposite Hans Conry on January 13, 1944, in Dime a Dance. Both set to music. And so with Dime a Dance and with the performance of Lucille Ball as a red-haired young lady named Ginger Allen, Roma Wines again hope to keep you in... Suspense. Have you ever danced with a murder? Doesn't cost any more for the extra thrill. It's only a dime. How could I do it, you say? I had to, to save my own life. I'm a taxi dancer from the Joyland Palace. One of the places just off Broadway in the 40s. You know the kind of place. Second-rate dance bands like Frankie Froman's 15 Frolickers. I was late to work that night. I ran down Broadway, scrambling through the crowd to the entrance of the Joyland. Fifty beautiful girls upstairs, boys. Come in and count them yourself. No admission, ten cents to dance. Come in, we're just getting started. The music is the very... Hello, Max. Hey, uh, Ginger, you better step on him. Marina's looking for you. You're late, he's burning. I know it. Has Julie come in yet? Not yet. Fifty beautiful girls waiting to dance with you. Step right in. Ah, good evening. So you finally decided to come, did you? Hiya, Marino. Sorry, I'm late. Yeah, you ought to be. So did Julie. All the cash customers are waiting. I sent out the girls before all the years are here, and you say I'm playing favorites. Well, blame it on Julie. She gave me a stand-up tonight. All right, so I'll blame it on Julie. Where is she? Isn't she here? No, and she ain't home neither, because I phoned her there 15 minutes ago. I thought she was with you. And I thought she was here. Hey, if this is no gag, what happened to her? Well, that's what I'm beginning to wonder. Hey, go on in and get your stuff on. Julie be all right. Yeah, maybe she slipped in while you were busy counting tickets or something. See you right away, Marino. We've been entertained by Mom here while waiting for her. All right, lay off. Mom, throw me that foot powder. Looks like a heavy night out there. My feet still hurt from last night. Here you are, dearie. Here you are. That's the way I am, girlies. What I like every once in a while is a good, juicy murder. Nice kid. No, not to be murdered herself. Throw me that dress, would you, Madame Defarge? The green one. Is Julie here? Not unless she's hiding in the closet, honey. Do any of you know where she is? You asking us? Ain't she your buddy? Maybe they had a fight. Well, did any of you hear from her? Why not ask Marino? He's been hanging around her. <laughs> now, that southern girl, Sally, she used to work in a joint like this one further uptown. There was a murder for you. Come on, hurry it up in there. Up the floor, step on it. She just never showed up to work one night. Who didn't? That southern girl, Sally. Then they found her. That was about three years ago. Oh, what a sight she was when the police discovered the body. Oh, cut it out, Mom. Then there was a Robinson gal out in oh. Brooklyn, stabbed to death. They found a phonograph and records by a body didn't even belong to her. The murderer brought his own music. Oh, she was a dancehall phony, too. Maybe some guy has it in for you girls. Pleasant character. Well, maybe one fella kills the both of them. It, maybe there's a dance hall killer still at large getting ready for his next victim. 
Now, what do you think I pay you girls for anyway? I often wonder. Dorverino, <laughs> think we're giving a free show in here? Ah, uh, you couldn't interest anybody in that chassis of yours even with a set of dishes thrown in. All right, all of you, file out. I got something to tell Ginger. Uh, come on, get out. Uh, Ginger, what I wanted to see you. About. I know, I know, Marino. I put you in a spot. I'll be dressed in a minute, and if you'll ward off those garlic eaters tonight, I'll work twice as hard and make it up to you, honest. No, I'm in no spot, Ginger, but you are. Marino, what's the matter? What's happened? The police want to see you, Ginger. Police? What for? I didn't do anything. I'm sorry, Ginger, but you. Something's happened to Julie. That's what the police want to see you by. Julie's dead. Dead? Murdered. Most of us had that. It uh, enabled you to work more often. When I tell you that I worked for 50 cents a night and that apprenticeship was very valuable, there were only five of us doing a show. It was a very cheap carbon copy of a very successful show out of New York called March of Time. Mm. And we called it It Happened Today. And I remember in one 30-minute show, for which I was paid 50 cents and wasn't worth much more, I had to play 18 voices in 30 minutes. You know, you keep mentioning this, the craft which has all... Well, it has, has been the lost, same facility say. now the, uh, and the same scope that being a dirigible pilot or a bucky whip <laughs> grader, you know. It was a craft. We you did our work, and those of us, I think, I can say honestly, we felt then, and I can speak out now and say we were very good indeed, those of us who worked. They were pretty capable actors within their scope and sphere. It's high noon in New York and time for Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. The people of the United States preferred to take D-Day seriously and prayerfully. There was no confetti, no wild demonstrations. Instead, thousands of Americans responded to the good news in a much finer and better way. Throughout the country, they trooped to blood donor stations and war bond booths. War bond sales increased. Payroll offices of factories were swamped with bond buyers. Some cities started their fifth war loan drive early and have already sold their quotas. Yes, Americans are rallying behind our gallant armies of liberation storming fortress Europe. But don't forget for one moment that the war is far from won. So here on the home front this noon, let's renew our determination to do everything we can to speed the day of victory for our fighting men. And now, Ted, what's new? The Allied Army of Liberation. With the biggest war effort in full swing, Desi was put to the task of organizing entertainment shows for the Army, using his and Lucy's influence to snag stars for guest appearances. Word began to circulate about his abilities as a producer. He was soon put in charge of events at the Birmingham Hospital in San Fernando. Lucy threw herself into the fundraising efforts. Two weeks after D-Day on June 22, 1944, she again appeared on Suspense in the 10 grand. This is the Man in Black, here for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, Roma Wines bring you a star, Miss Lucille Ball, who appears tonight as a Broadway lady whom you may have often seen if you are a devotee of musical comedy. She is the third one from the left in the chorus line. And so with this little lady's narrative about the ten grand, and with the performance of Lucille Ball as Miss Gigi Lewis, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense!
On this particular night, I'm standing in front of the Broadway Lindy's with my nose practically pasted against the window. It's late, and I'm hungry. I've been pounding the pavements all day doing the rounds of the manager's offices. You'd think a good hooper like I ought to be able to land something with all the shows on the big street. But here I am, standing like General Sherman's statue in front of Lindy's, looking at the pasted-up menu and mentally overindulging in a big, thick, juicy T-bone steak smothered with onions. That comfortable crowd inside there can toy politely with their chicken sandwiches and their shrimp cocktails for all I care. Just give me a T-bone smothered onions. Here I am with five cents in my handbag, literally. Enough for the ride home in the subway, no extra charge for the empty stomach. Well, anyway, I could take my shoes off when I get in the subway. I turn around and give Lindy's one last sorrowful gander and then make for the subway entrance. It's just the time the shows are letting out. Plenty of people from the taxi set are taking the subway home these nights, being short on tires and gas. So I get in that Times Square jam that looks like 5 o'clock p.m. and feels like a Russian pincers movement on the Polish border. I'm getting shoved toward the turnstile, so I quick try to get my handbag open to reach for that lonesome nickel. All of a sudden, I feel something jerk out of my hand. My bag is gone. I try to yell, stop! Hey, hey, stop! I twist around and see somebody, a little guy with short bow legs running toward the stairs. Stop that guy! Stop that guy! He's got my out of the mob and after the purse snatcher, but I'm like the ace of spades being dealt off the bottom of the pack. When I'm finally in the clear a little, I see a tall guy running after that little guy who has my purse. They both disappear around the corner and up the steps. There's plenty of commotion in the crowd. You'd think there was a million dollars in my handbag for all the fuss they're making. But I don't stop to think about anything except that I lost my fair home. I take out after the tall guy. When I get to the foot of the stairs, the tall guy's coming down again. And he's got my bag in his hand. He's smiling a big, wide smile at me and... I'm gazing gratefully up into his big brown eyes and noticing the way his hairline ain't receding any. Just the guy to go around rescuing ladies in distress. Regular Sir Galahad or somebody. Is this yours, miss? Yeah. Gee, how can I ever thank you? Think nothing of it. There you are. What about the guy, the, the, the thief? Oh, there was a cop on the street. He'll take care of him. What about you? You're all right, aren't you? Oh, sure, sure. I'm all right. <laughs> you uh, look kind of pale. I uh, guess it would have been pretty tough to lose your purse that way, especially this late at night. Oh, I don't know why you bothered, really. Nothing but a nickel in it, anyway. I don't carry much with me when I'm out at night. <laughs> <laughs> a uh, nickel will get your home, huh? He's smiling at me again, and my heart saying, Oh, brother. We both start towards the mob at the turnstile, and I'm busy hoping he's going my way so we can sort of get better acquainted, you know? Well, good night. Hang on to that pocketbook now. Well, aren't you, uh... Well, good night. I'm caught in that mob at the turnstile again, and the train's coming in. Somehow, the way you do in crowds, I lose sight of him. And I gotta concentrate on digging out that nickel to put in the slot. I open up my bag and find the nickel all right, and then my heart almost stops. It's a great big wad of bills, folding money, cash. I managed to get the nickel in the slot and get myself through to the platform and on the train, all the while hanging onto that bag as if there were ten grand in it. Ten thousand dollars. Gee, it could be that much. The roll is big enough. My head's going around in crazy circles. The door's closed behind me and everybody in the car is rushing to find a seat. Over the noise, I hear something.
Unfortunately, while Lucy was on tours for Bonds and to promote her new film, Meet the People, co-starring Dick Powell, word of Desi's nightlife was circulating. Confidential Magazine published an expose about a Palm Springs weekend of his. Desi drunkenly insulted his superior officer. During the summer of 1944, he stopped coming home altogether. At first, Lucy responded by going on dates with other MGM contract players to make him jealous. It didn't work. She filed for divorce in September of 1944, citing grievous mental suffering. The night before Lucy was scheduled to appear in court, Desi showed up. He was contrite, and as a devout Catholic afraid of divorce. He promised to be a better husband. They reconciled. The next morning, she dropped the suit. Tell him the story about when you gave me the lines, will you? We just lost Stan Kenton, the band, you know, they went somewhere. We had an opening, so Lucy called me and said, put Desi in his band on. You were on for two years, weren't you? Yeah. And the writers would give Desi a line, and he'd walk up to the thing and spit all over the microphone, and, uh, and the guacamole would fall out. <laughs> That was that. And they'd cut it and say, and then I'd say, give him a couple of lines. Give this kid a couple of lines, you know. And we'd give him a little <laughs> And he'd drop an omelet all over the thing. And so after a while, you know, I'd have to fight him to get, get him to give Des a few lines. And about four years later, he was the king of show business. This guy was not only directing, he was telling funny things and so and so. And I hadn't seen him for five years. And I ran into him down in Palm Springs. He said, hello. And I said, you're reading lines? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, you know. No, he was a kid and I didn't even, not only could I say them well, I didn't understand the jokes. Being with Bob was like going to college for a couple of years to study comedy by the master of all comedy. When William S. Paley returned from World War II, he decided to focus most of his attention on programming. If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. NBC had the biggest stars and Paley felt that in order to attract larger audiences and sponsors, CBS would have to create the best original broadcasts on the air. They began actively piloting new shows. Paley had great respect for Lucy's comedic ability. Ball wanted her and Desi to spend more time at home, and radio allowed for that. For many years, Lucy was trying to promote Desi's career and make a star out of him. She was dissatisfied because he was on the road with his band most of the time, and she was here in Hollywood, and they were separated so much. In July of 1946, Radio Daily reported that Ball was to star in a new series based on Ruth McKenney's My Sister Eileen. Arthur Curling would produce. Friend Bob Hope's radio program needed a new musical director. On September 6th, Desi was hired. Lucy appeared on the program on November 12th. Thank 
everybody. And before we go any further, Bob, I want to thank you for that wonderful introduction. If we weren't in front of an audience, I'd give you a great big kiss. Everybody out. Everybody out. <laughs> Home, everybody. Go, go. Take your boats and go, go. <laughs> Happy waiting. Where are we? Oh, Abbott, where are we? Oh, yes. Tell me, Lucille. Oh, what's your latest picture? Easy to Wed. Yes, but what's the title of the picture? That's the title, Bob. It's called Easy to Wed. No kidding. Who plays the lead? Artie Shaw? Oh. <laughs> yes, sir. Artie Shaw, that five-time winner. Oh. Well, anyway, they'll make a good combination. Forever Amber and Forever Eager. <laughs> How about your picture? Bob, Van Johnson is in Easy to Wed. I think he's wonderful. Van Johnson. That's all you girls think of. Is there anything else? <laughs> I don't know. You must be kidding. I've got everything he's got. Yes, Bob, but he's got Van in front. <laughs> well, to each his own. Say, uh... I don't think he's too many. Why, Paramount, they're always trying to give me the Van Johnson type of parts. Well, grab him, boy. You could use a few parts. <laughs> what do you mean? That Johnson hasn't got anything but a cowlick. I had a cowlick once, too. Yes, Bob. I heard about your romance with Elsie. <laughs> Let him lay, Lucille. Don't milk him. Don't milk him. I like to get different roles, Bob. I'm always a wise-cracking gum-chewing type. You're always a gum-chewing type. Yeah, last month the Beechnut people voted me Miss Jawbreaker of 1946. <laughs> well, speaking of jawbreakers, Lucille, you should meet Miss Vague. Miss Vague, this is Lucille Ball, the glamorous, gorgeous movie star. Oh, really? <laughs> I just think of her as Lucille Ball, period. <laughs> what a coincidence. I think of you as Vera Vague, question mark. <laughs> Oh, now, steady now, steady. <laughs> Miss Ball, huh? That's right, Ball. Well, I wouldn't worry about it, dear. I've been bounced around a bit myself. <laughs> Miss Vague, don't you mean dribbled? <laughs> Isn't she pretty, Mr. Holmes? All that beautiful red hair. And it's on straight, too. <laughs> Tell me, Miss Vague, when you get up in the morning, who puts you together? <laughs> Girls, please, let's not pull hair. Hair? Huh. I could have hair like that, too, but who wants to sleep with their head in a glass of orange juice every night? <laughs> but you do smell nice, darling, for your type. <laughs> what is that perfume you're wearing? Oh, this is called Evening at Zero's. How do you like it? Too bad you couldn't get a better table. Why <laughs> oh, you, you female red skeleton, you are blessed your eyes. Oh, come now, girls. Let's kiss and make up. Oh, all right. I'm a good sport. All right. <laughs> Bob, you're not supposed to be in this. Don't be silly. All the delegates are supposed to join in at the peace conference. Don't you think? <laughs> Thank you, Lucille, and thank you very much. Here comes my son, Desi Arnaz. 
In the spring, Lucy hired Gary Stevens to be her network liaison. He had one directive, find Lucy more radio work. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents a new comedy. My Friend Irma. Starring Marie Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane with John Brown as Al. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship when other friendships have been forgotten. On April 11, 1947, My Friend Irma, starring Kathy Lewis and Marie Wilson, debuted on CBS. They can sing about it maybe because they haven't any friends. In May, Arthur Curlin sued. He was a former lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy and was once radio director for the Office of Emergency Management under President Roosevelt. It's just that Mother Nature gave some girls brains, intelligence, cleverness. He alleged that CBS used the audition record Lucia Ball had cut from My Sister Eileen as a basis for my friend Irma. Ball was reportedly offered Marie Wilson's title role, but turned it down for a chance to work with Desi. Unfazed, she appeared opposite Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra in a radio adaptation of Too Many Husbands for the Screen Guild Theater on April 21st. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild Players and Somerset Moms hilarious comedy about a shipwreck, a courtship, and an extra wedding. Too Many Husbands. It stars Bob Hope as husband number one, Frank Sinatra as husband number two, and Lucille Ball as the long-suffering wife. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in Too Many Husbands. A year ago, Bill Cardew took a solo cruise in a ramshackle boat and disappeared from the face of the earth. His widow, Vicky, married Henry Lowndes, Bill's partner in the candy manufacturing business. This evening, Vicky picked Henry up at the office, and they are just returning home after dinner and a show. Peter the butler meets them at the door. Uh, good evening, madam. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Peter. Hiya, Pete. Got a fire going for yes, us? Yes, sir. boy. Now you can trot along and throw yourself into the hay. Uh, very good, sir. Uh, say, you still reading that mystery, The Case of the Marinated Corpse? I completed it this evening, sir. You did, huh? Who knocked off the victim? The butler, sir. Oh, well, I'll come up later, Pete, and lock you in. Uh, very good, sir. Oh, I beg your pardon, madam. Yes, Peter? I neglected to mention that a gentleman called while you were gone and left this message. I took it down verbatim. Oh, you're getting sloppy, Pete. Next time, take it down word for word. <laughs> very good, sir. In August of 1947, Broadcasting Magazine announced that the General Artist Corporation was to produce a new musical comedy radio show. The show was to star Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. With so much greatness happening in audio fiction, it can be hard to find the best of the best. So why not have someone do the work for you? On Radio Drama Revival, our team of experts showcase the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. And then we ask the creators the questions you'd want to ask. Their relationship is important to you. I'm shipper trash, David, you can say it. It's okay. <laughs> 
And my question to you is, can it be Keisha time? Like, what do you dream about achieving not only for your neighborhood, but for yourself? Mm. Oh, day. <laughs> Maybe before you realize you'd want to ask them. Do you think souls exist? I personally do. When I ask you to visualize time, what do you see? Yeah, okay. I guess I've got quite a dark sense of humor in some ways. Um, do you feel that you think about death more often or differently than you would otherwise now that you've been playing these characters? Find great new audio fiction by finding us at radiodramarevival.com. A benefit of radio as opposed to all the other forms of show business. Radio stimulated the imagination. When you had a mystery show on radio and that creaking door opened, the people listening, their hair literally stood on end and you looked over your shoulder, you really shivered a little bit because each person listening imagined the most horrible thing that they could think of that would show up when the door opened. On television, you open the door and there's some idiot standing there or there's somebody with a wild makeup on and fangs hanging out and all sorts of wild-looking eyes. And half the time you want to laugh because they're so damn ridiculous, if you pardon the word damn. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Lucille Ball and Mark Stevens in The Dark Corner. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. <laughs> Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The other day at the studio, Fred Colmar, prominent 20th Century Fox producer... In November of 1947, the Lux Radio Theater was the CBS Monday Night Centerpiece for an evening of audience domination, with a rating of 31.2. On November 10th, Lucille Ball guest starred in a condensation of The Dark Corner. ...his production, and our play tonight, The Dark Corner, thereby vindicating his judgment. Co-starred with Miss Ball is another player who's risen rapidly to well-deserved eminence on the screen, Mark Stevens. Both superbly cast, I think you'll agree, in a hard-hitting melodrama of murder, mystery, and romance. And that reminds me of another mystery story, one concerning Lux Toilet Soap. It's from Mrs. Vivian Gardner of Santa Barbara, who discovered that for some weeks, Lux Soap was mysteriously disappearing from her cupboard. After competent detective work, she finally traced it to her teenage daughter. That young lady said, Why, mother, I thought you knew. I just took the soap to put in my bureau as sachets because I just love the Lux toilet soap fragrance. Well, I'm sure Mrs. Gardner meted out to her daughter no more punishment than a compliment for her ingenuity and good taste. It's playtime and star time. And here they are, Lucille Ball as Kathleen and Mark Stevens as Bradford Galt in Act One of The Dark Corner. Well, 
York City, a sultry summer afternoon. In an old-fashioned office building, Detective Lieutenant Reeves is making a routine visit. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It says on the door, Bradford Galt, private investigator. You're his secretary? Yes, may I help you? Lieutenant Reeves, police department. Oh. Yes, you can help me, if you know anything I want to know. Well, I wouldn't know anything you couldn't find out by asking Mr. Galt. He'll be back in a minute. Nice quality. Loyalty. How long have you been working for Galt? Several weeks. What do you know about him? I like him. Does he keep you busy? I sharpen pencils, do the typing, answer the phone, and mind my own business. Well, look who's here. Hello, Reeves. Hello, Galt. What are you working on these days? My income tax. Why? Nothing special. Last time I called on you, you were on 6th Avenue. Why didn't you tell me you were moving your office over here? Why should I? I notified the Commissioner of Licenses. But you didn't notify me. I like to know these things, too. I've taken a professional and personal interest in you. I promised my friends in San Francisco to see that you didn't get into mischief. You're an impulsive youth, you know. Look, I got a fast shuffle out west. All I'm asking is a fair chance to work up a legitimate business. I'm playing this by the book, and I won't even trip over a comma. I hope not. Okay, Galt. I'll see you around, I guess. It's nearly six o'clock, Mr. Galt. I'll leave, too, if there's nothing else. There is something else. Oh? Would you mind having dinner with me? Is this part of the job? It is tonight. Working conditions are certainly looking up around here. And party your nose, honey, and let's go. Oh, dinner was lovely, Mr. Galt. Thank you. You're welcome. Say, uh, how'd you like to go dancing? We got some great playgrounds up around 52nd Street. Among them, your apartment? Oh, well, uh, that's just a coincidence. I haven't worked for you very long, but I know when you're pitching a curve at me, and I always carry a catcher's mitt. No offense. The guy's got to try, doesn't he? Not in my league, Mr. Galt. In my league, we play for keeps, said she with a smile. Oh, well, maybe I ought to fire you then. Before you do, I ought to tell you something. We're being followed. I know. Guy in a white suit, about 5'10", brown hair, sports shoes. I, uh, I've never been followed before. Hey, that's a terrible reflection on American manhood. It's been tailing us since we left the office. Why? I don't know. Maybe he likes your big blue eyes. Do we just keep walking? No. There's a cab at the corner. Take it. Go around the block, then park across from our office. Wait there till he comes out. And you? I'll invite the white suit up to the office for choir practice. After he sings, you follow him. Let me know where he goes. Okay, but what have you been doing lately? What do you think I've been doing? Well, I think you could have been doing a lot of things. Because you're stubborn and impulsive and you think you're tough. You've got some blind spots, too. Yeah? Name one. Sentiment about women, for instance. You're afraid of emotion. You keep your heart in a steel safe. I uh, suppose you're the blowtorch type. I can be warm. Oh, good. Here's the cab. Be careful, Brad. I'll see you later. All right, Buster. Huh? Let's take a walk. Why? Because there's a gun in my pocket that says you'd better. Come on. My office is just around the block. In late fall, with Lucy appearing in Dreamgirl in Detroit, Desi left his band in Wisconsin for a surprise one-night reunion. 
he was to charter a flight to catch up. A phone call awoke Lucy and Desi in the middle of the night. The bus was in an accident, although no one was killed. The spot on the bus with the most damage was where Desi normally sat. The couple took it as a serious omen to spend more time together. After Lux went off the air, my friend Irma signed on at 10 p.m. By February of 1948, the new hit comedy had a rating of 28.3. Now more than ever, William Paley wanted Lucille Ball for a new CBS series. She said yes. In the meantime, on April 28th, Lucy guest starred on the Jimmy Durante show. Good health to all from Rexall. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in honor of the baseball season, I'd like to present one ball that's got plenty of curves on it. It's Lucille Ball. Thanks for the pretty words, Jimmy. You deserve them. Ah, Lucille, it's good to observe your pulchitudinousness again. <laughs> your lovely face, your form divine, and your hair that's out of this world. Oh, Jimmy, it's good to see you again, too. Your stalwart, manly physique, your finely chiseled face, and your hair. Yes, go on. Get some more hair, and I'll finish the line. <laughs> Wait a minute. There's not much there, but every strand has a muscle. But now, let's digress to a more fruitful topic. Tropic. I hear you're... <laughs> I hear you're starring in, your para in a new Paramount picture called Sorrowful Jones. Oh, yes, Jimmy, and it's a wonderful story. What fun it is working with Bob Hope. Bob Hope? My nemesis. Don't mention that name to me. He's my only competition in the nose business. Oh, Jimmy, don't worry about him. When it comes to noses, he's a retailer. You're a wholesaler. Ah... <laughs> Touche, Lucille, touche. And for your information, touche and touche is fauché. <laughs> Brilliant. I did it by arithmetic. Brilliant. Listen, Jimmy, let's get down to the purpose of my visit here today. I heard that you were running for office, and I've got a plan that's bound to get you elected. You've got to come out solidly in favor of women managing industry. Women managing industry? Why, it's ridiculously, ridiculously. <laughs> They'll never show up at the office. What do you mean? Well, when a woman gets up in the morning, she puts on cold cream, vanishing cream, foundation cream, cucumber cream, and milkweed cream. Well, a woman has to use cream to look good when she goes to work. How can she go to work? She's got to keep her head in the icebox all day to keep her face from curdling. <laughs> No, 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 Lucille. Woman's place is in the home. Oh, not anymore. Why, I bet if women were given half a chance, they'd completely take over industry and the men could take care of the house. Let's look a few years into the future and see how it would work out. Oh, boy, what a day I had at the office. Darling, I'm home. Oh, there you are. That apron and dust cap you're wearing fooled me. It fooled the Iceman, too. <laughs> He melted down 50 pounds before he discovered his error. <laughs> Tell me, dear, how did things go today down at the office? Oh, terrible. I've got a new secretary, and is he dumb? He fell off my lap three times. <laughs> I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. 
My mother told me you turned fickle as soon as I developed middle-aged spread. <laughs> ah, I know I'm just a drudge. Well, you don't have to be. I told you to get a man in to do the housework. How can I when you only give me $30 a week to run the house? Look at Mr. Brown upstairs. His wife gives him $40 a week. Oh, Mr. Brown. I'd give him 40 myself. <laughs> I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it You don't love me anymore That's why you're so grouchy in the morning Well, how can I help being grouchy in the morning? Did you ever get a look at yourself with your nose up in curlers? <laughs> well, I only do it for you If I didn't curl it, we'd have to use twin beds <laughs> Well, maybe I'm getting a little frowsy But what do you expect? Look at the clothes I have to wear Your mother's old worn-out slacks They don't even fit me well, can I help it if you're dumpier than she is? It isn't that at all. Where I squat, she's not. And where I stoop, she droops. <laughs> I'm sick of this life anyway. I liked it better when women took care of the house and men went out knowing the living. Oh, you're just tired, dear. You've done a wonderful job around the house. Why, on Washington's birthday, you baked me a lovely cherry pie. And on Easter, you made me a beautiful bonnet. Believe me, dear, you can do anything a woman can do. I got news for you. On Mother's Day, I resign. You see, Lucille, it just wouldn't work out All right, Jimmy, I thought you made a wonderful housewife You can't get away from it, Lucille Females belong in the While Lucy fought a losing battle to convince CBS Brass to allow Desi to co-star in My Favorite Husband An audition was recorded on July 5th, 1948 With Lee Bowman as George Ten years ago, the town's most eligible bachelor, George Cougat, married socially prominent Elizabeth Elliot. The lavish wedding kept the society columns all over the country in copy for weeks. The New Yorker said, Bride and groom were dressed to the nth degree of smartness. Best man was a polo pony. <laughs> the Hearst Papers said, The bride and groom were dressed handsomely in attractive comments from guest Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> And the Reader's Digest said, The bride and groom were dressed. <laughs> well, after the honeymoon... George Ten days later, Radio Daily reported that My Favorite Husband would debut on Friday, July 23rd at 9 p.m. from Hollywood. Richard Denning would be George. Gail Gordon was Rudolph Atterbury. Bea Benadera played Iris Atterbury. And Ruth Perot was Katie, the Cooper's maid. She couldn't sew, she couldn't clean. Working with Lucy was a joy, but also working with Eve Arden was. I've been very, very lucky, and the people that I've worked with have all been very inspiring people, very, very capable and talented, and very nice people, and I consider that one of the mm -hmm. greatest glories of this profession. Early morning, and there's husband George at the breakfast table. But where's wife, Liz? Oh, there she is, upstairs in the bedroom with Katie, the maid. Well, this is certainly unusual. Liz is getting into a formal evening gown. Let me check again. Although the summer series had potential, Eve Arden's Our Miss Brooks launched the same week was an immediate success. Oh, just a little more, Katie. Can you get the zipper up now? Yes, ma'am. CBS needed to establish a regular production crew. Gay next staff writers Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll Jr. were hired. Then we wrote for Steve Allen in about 46, something like that. Yeah. It was a West Coast show called It's a Great Life. And they had just signed Steve. He had done Smile Time, right, with June Perret? <laughs> I guess. 
And, and then he was doing this with the West Coast. Well, yeah, the Midnight Show, too. Funny story. We were doing Steve's show, and we also were doing a pilot. We did a thing called The Couple Next Star with Barbara Luddy. Barbara Luddy and Tony Barrett. CBS at that time was starting to do some network shows, radio shows, out here more instead of in New York. And they were doing My Favorite Husband with Lucille Ball, and uh, Bob and I thought we maybe could do that. We'd been writing this couple next door, which was domestic comedy. We thought we'd write a script. The writers were going back on Ozzie and Harriet, so we knew they needed writers. So I went to see Harry Ackerman, who was a big deal, head of uh, programming for network. He wouldn't pay us. Well, I said to him, we have the script. I said, will you pay us? And he said, no, I don't have any money for that. And I said, okay, we'll give it to you anyway. <laughs> you know how you do. So they bought it, and uh, they wanted us to start. Now, we were supposed to be writing Steve Allen's show. We paid him to write our spots on his show. We gave him our fee, which I think was $50, yeah. to write his own show. That evening gown. Well, you've seen me wearing an evening gown before. Well, I've seen you wearing galoshes, too, but not at breakfast. <laughs> of course not. It never rains under the table. Darling, the reason I'm wearing this gown is because I'm going to have my portrait painted. The On October 2nd, my favorite husband moved to Saturday nights at 7 p.m. And Jess Oppenheimer was brought in to lead. It was kind of a shambles because one of the staff guys was running it, a director, and... Uh, Gordon and Hughes. He, well, he wasn't a writer, and so everybody is off in different directions doing different scripts and viewpoints. And it wasn't sponsored yet, but they were trying to get a sponsor, so... And Lisa was kind of skittering about it because she'd not done radio. No, she didn't. She wasn't too sure about the whole thing. And so they brought in Jess Oppenheimer, who... Maybe Snooks. Well, he had been with Young and Rubicum in the days when the agencies, you know, ran the shows. And he had done uh, the Fanny Bryce thing and, and a lot of other oh, stuff. Valley. So they brought him in, and he, of course, he was much more experienced than we were, and they put us with him, and then it kind of clicked because he could run it, we could write. I remember being so frightened of Lucille Ball, who was a big star, and uh, I hadn't been away from the Midwest very long. I wasn't used to chumming around with big movie stars, and I was so terrified of her. And she used to refer to me as the lady. <laughs> Get the boys and the lady, she would call me to come in. Later on, we had dinner with her at the Beachcombers, and she confessed that in motion pictures, you're not supposed to like your writers or even know them. They said they weren't supposed to go to dinner with your That's writers. That's why she was sort of aloof and kind of strange to it. Yeah, so she didn't show us, and we said, we want to go to dinner and talk about, get to know you. And she said, I don't know. And she said, I didn't want to go because you're not supposed to be friendly with your writers. <laughs> that shows what writers in the movies used to put up with. Bachelor Deluxe, Danzel Delight, the kind of man you'd like to marry your sister. Oppenheimer had a long history of guiding creative teams and handling big stars like Fanny Bryce, Fred Astaire, Eddie Cantor, and Jack Benny. That was off the air, and Lucy had started a radio show called My Favorite Husband. It was in about its 12th week, and it wasn't doing well at all. I wrote a script for it. They asked me to be head writer, and then a couple of weeks later asked me to also produce and direct it. And that went on for three and a half years. the real thing. I think I shall marry this girl. Corey, that's wonderful. What's her name? Where does she live? Darn, I knew I forgot something. <laughs> her home life was very unhappy during the whole time, and the only thing she had to really enjoy and throw herself into was her work, and she just wouldn't quit. She wanted to work, 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 and you know, rehearse all the time. And although it may be a tragedy for the performer because she's escaping from an unhappy situation, it's wonderful for a producer because you get a polished performance that you don't get with lazy actors. 
Now, Lucy was never a problem to me. Twelve feet tall. Really now, Corey, twelve feet tall. Maybe it is a slight exaggeration, but I understand that before he painted portraits, he used to paint rooftops. Without a ladder. While CBS sustained production costs, the show began to hit its stride. The Cougats became the Coopers, and they lived in a little white two-story house at 321 Bundy Lane, in the bustling little suburb of Sheridan Falls. Lucille Ball was the zany housewife. Richard Denning was the typical adult husband, forgetful, lovable, always stereotypically male. Plots began to resemble ones that would happen a few years later on I Love Lucy, and the show was performed in front of a live audience. Let's introduce some more people. That, that, that voice you hear back there, uh, the one in the middle, Curly, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's our producer and director and, uh, and, and writer of the show. He writes the show along with uh, uh, the two people sitting up in the top there, Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll Jr. Right in here is Jess Oppenheimer. How about a hand for all of you? This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Hello, everybody. Yes, it's the Gay Family Series, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Transcribed and brought to you by the Jell-O family of Red Letter Desserts. CBS pushed the series as part of its new package program initiative. On December 15, 1948, Radio Daily announced that General Foods for Jell-O would be sponsoring My Favorite Husband and dropping Mr. Ace and Jane. The program moved to Saturday nights at 8.30 in the new year. Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper, two people who live together and like it. <laughs> As we look in on the Coopers, it's morning, and we find Katie, the maid, in the kitchen. Liz Cooper is just coming into the room. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Mrs. Cooper. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Hold it, Katie. This is not my birthday. It isn't? No. Oh, dear, and I already put a candle in your grapefruit. (laughs) Too bad. I can't understand how I made that mistake. When is your birthday, anyway? Never. (laughs) Huh? I had my last birthday a year ago today. Oh, you've reached that point, huh? It's awful. I never realized it, Katie. Today I'm 33. That's more than halfway to 35. I'm practically 40. (laughs) I know. Well, if you aren't going to celebrate, I better not bake your cake. I should say not. I don't want anything to even remind me that it's my birthday. All right. Hmm. What can I do about George? What do you mean? How can I possibly keep him from remembering it's my birthday? Just don't tell him. (laughs) Katie, that's mean. Why, my birthday is the most important day in the year to George. Liz, where are you, honey? I'm out here in the kitchen, dear. You just watch the fuss he makes. Oh, there you are. I've been looking all over the house for you. You have my little husband. What for? Uh, You know what day this is, don't you? Why, no. What day is it? It's Saturday. I told you to call a plumber last Wednesday. (laughs) 
The bathroom basin is stopped up again. <laughs> is there anything else? No. Oh, yes. What? I'm late for the bank. I'll just skip breakfast. Goodbye, dear. Oh, George? Yes, dear? Uh... <laughs> hey, how can I hear Liz with you making all that racket? Sorry. Yeah, what is it, Liz? I'm in a hurry. Nothing. Oh, well, goodbye, dear. Bye. Oh, there, there, Mrs. Cooper. George didn't give me any presents or flowers. He didn't even remember my birthday. But, Mrs. Cooper, you said you didn't want him to remember. I didn't. I wanted him to forget about my birthday. But he forgot about my birthday. <laughs> Lucille Ball is a kind of a performer who needs a lot of rehearsal. And if she gets enough of it, there's just no heights to which she can't reach. But he would continually be leaving to go to a meeting or something. And, and many times, you know, she'd say, but well, we need the rehearsal. And Bessie would say, well, we know the words. What are you talking about? And he never could quite understand what, what happened inside of Lucy. If you came to a rehearsal, first reading, you'd say, keep everybody but the redhead. She's terrible. Fire her. Lucy never seemed to know what she was reading the first time through. She was looking for meanings and not paying any attention to how it came out. And slowly, over the days of rehearsal, she would polish and polish. And finally, if she got enough rehearsal, as I said before, she was just sensational. Now, how can I just hint at it? I know. I'll tell... Sheridan Falls, First National Bank. Mr. Atterbury, please. One moment. Hello? Happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to a close relative of your head support vice president, happy birthday to me. Hello? Hello? I think we have a bad connection. <laughs> happy birthday to me, happy birthday to I heard that. Good. Well, goodbye. There, that ought to... There, that ought to do it. <laughs> Did you send for me, Mr. Atterbury? Yes, George boy. I just had the weirdest phone call. Hmm. Who was it? I don't know. Well, was it a man or a woman? I don't know. <laughs> it sounded something like this. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to a close relative of your handsome blonde vice president. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> A close relative of mine? Oh, gee, I wonder who it can be. Do you have any relatives who come from Mars? <laughs> no. And it isn't Liz's birthday. Are you sure? Oh, I know Liz. If it was her birthday, she'd never have let me out of the house without telling me. True. Yeah, <laughs> besides, Liz's birthday is June the 3rd. Or is it February the 8th? Or is that our wedding anniversary? Well, I know they're both in the spring sometime. Close relative. Uh, how did that voice sound again? Happy birthday to me. Of course, mother. Mother? <laughs> Your mother would pull a trick like that? Yeah, she gets pretty cute sometimes. 
Oh, cute, cute. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad she called. I, I'll have to run out and buy her something and arrange a little surprise party for uh, her. Go ahead, boy. I'll be in uh, Miller's department store if you want me. Uh, pardon me, miss. Uh, will you wait on me? Yes, sir. Uh, oh, hello, Mr. Cooper. What? I remember you from the other day when you were here with your wife. She was looking at coats and you were looking at prices. Oh, yes. Uh, well, uh, I'd like to buy a little birthday present and uh, have it sent out to the house. Certainly. What would you like? Well, it's hard to decide, but uh, I think a nightgown would be nice. Yes, sir. <laughs> I suppose you want something sheer and lacy and invitingly feminine. Well, no, I, I think you'd better make it long flannel. <laughs> yeah. You've been married quite a while, haven't you? What? Nothing, nothing. I've got just the thing, Mr. Cooper. I'll send it out this afternoon. Do you want to put a card in? Uh, yes. Uh, do you have one? Uh-huh, there on the desk. Okay. Uh, just send it out this afternoon. Oh, by the way, uh, do you have a bakery in the store? Bakery? No. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, here's the card. Mm. Well, I'd better get going. I have to find a cake that will hold 65 candles. <laughs> so long. Bye. 65 candles. Long flannel nightgown. Huh, I only hope I look that good at her age. <laughs> I did a radio show with her called My Favorite Husband. Now, you played her husband's boss then, right? Yes. girl, come in. What brings you to the bank? And that was also a bank president. Right. They got you close to the money, don't they? <laughs> Didn't they? <laughs> yes, well, the idea in those days was that anyone who was a boss of a bank had to be a blowhard. Oh, of course, of course. You called and I gave George the message and he ran right out to buy some presents for you. What's wrong? Well, I thought that uh, George said that we decided when he was... You would... Wrong? <laughs> Nothing's wrong. Well, I guess I wasn't very subtle. What did George say when you told him? Uh, he knew it all the time. Oh. He's out buying some presents right now. Oh, isn't he sweet? Uh, yes, yes. Well, uh, goodbye. I'll see you later. Goodbye. I'm going. Don't push me. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, bye. Whew. Now to alert George boy. Let's see. Where did he go? Oh, Miller's department store. Uh, I hope he's still there. Hello? Miller's department store? It's very important that I locate George Cooper. He's there and I... No, no, no. Cooper. C-O-O-P-E... No, no. P, like an ape. A-P-E. <laughs> no. No, A, like an appetite, A-P-P, -P. no, no, P. That's right, like in Cooper. 
<laughs> George Cooper. See if you can locate him right away. This is a matter of wife or death. <laughs> I, I don't care if you get it or not. Find him right away. <laughs> Well, it's to be hoped that something happens with real speed to save the day in the Cooper family. To be speed. quite honest, uh, the speed. parts I How did were because I was louder than anybody else in radio. I could scream louder than most people. And it doesn't take a lot of talent to be noisy and loud. But I had a good lung capacity and I could be very loud. And that's what they would, the producers would cast me for. We want someone loud. And uh, blow hard, and they said, well, get Gail Gordon, he's louder than anybody else. And so that <laughs> gave me a great deal of work, which isn't artistic, but at least it's truthful, and it kept the wolf from the door. And no matter which of those six delicious... In radio, I played leading men, heavies, character people, juveniles, old men, foreigners, everything else. I, no, I had no... Uh, I didn't miss it at all. When I got cast as a blowhard, I got more money for doing it than I did for the usual other characters. And so I was very happy to keep doing it and being cast as a blowhard. all in my favorite husband. As we look in on the Coopers again, George thinks it's his mother's birthday and is out buying her a present. Mr. Atterbury has just found out it's Liz's birthday instead and is calling the department store frantically trying to locate George. Hello. 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 I'm waiting for Mr. Cooper. Who's this? Oh, Mr. Cooper's gone. Oh. I waited on him. Can I help you? No, no, I have to... Wait a minute. You waited on him? Uh-huh. He, he bought a gift. What was it? A long flannel nightgown. Oh, yeah! <laughs> you said it, Buster. <laughs> what? Sir. Have you sent that out yet? Oh, no, sir. We'll just leave it. Good, good. Change it. Send, um... Oh, I wonder what Liz would like. You mean his wife? Yes, yes. She was looking at a suede jacket she was just crazy about. Good, good. Change that nightgown to the suede jacket and send it out to Cooper's right away. Yes, sir, right away. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye. Miss Perkins. Yes, sir? I'm going out. I have to find George Cooper. He thinks it's his mother's birthday, but it's his wife's. girl's been working for me too long. Uh, thank you. Who was it, Katie? A package from Miller's department store. Looks like a gift. Oh, it's my birthday present. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But it's addressed to Mr. Cooper. Of course, he doesn't want me to know. Well, I'll put it in the hall closet. Uh, let me see it. Do, do you think it's addressed? 
Well, are you going to open it? Of course not. I wouldn't do a thing like that. Oh, look, Katie, it's a suede jacket. Oh, I see. It's the very one I've been looking at. Oh, that darling, wonderful husband of mine. Oh, he certainly is thoughtful. Oh, Katie, do you need anything at the store? I just have to wear this someplace. How about a dozen eggs? No, we already have two dozen in the refrigerator. Well, I'll get you another dozen. I want to wear this jacket to the store. All right, I'll start getting dinner ready. Well, what are we having for dinner? The biggest omelet in the world. <laughs> well, I'll be back in a little while. Mr. Atterbury's office? Is he there, Miss Perkins? I want to tell him I won't be back for a while yet. I had trouble finding a cake that will hold 65 candles. Well, he's not here, Mr. Cooper. He's out looking for you. Me? What for? Well, he said something about it not being your mother's birthday. It's your wife's. My wife's? Oh, my gosh. They, they delivered the nightgown I bought for my mother, and if I know Liz, she'll open it. Oh, dear. Oh, well, there's only one thing for me to do. I'll go home and see if I can sneak it out before she sees it. Uh, goodbye. The only uh, difficulty was determining who was going to be the boss of the show. And this is not easy to do with Lucy. We had several big knockdown, drag out fights with crying and hysteria. And I walked out several times, which I, and subsequently I walked out a couple of times on I Love Lucy, too. But I had learned that you have to maintain that relationship, and particularly with Lucy, who has to lean on someone. She must be dominated by someone. And I first found out about it during those times when I wrote a scene for Dick Denning, played our husband. And he's a rather nice, passive fellow. But I wrote a scene where he really had to light into her and tell her off and read the riot act to her. And she came over to me after the first rehearsal. Her eyes were just lighted up. You know, she says, write more scenes like that. It's great. Well, why don't you really tell me off? You know? So I said, okay, and I can see what I have to do in the future, too. Yes. You scared me, too. Oh. What were you doing in the closet? Well, uh, uh, I wanted to get the present I sent you and exchange it for a better one. What? I should say not. Oh, but honey, you I were... have a confession to make, George. I opened the present you sent, and it's just what I wanted. It is? Absolutely. <laughs> it's the same one I was looking at the other day. You're not kidding me, Liz. Of course not. I put it on right away. <laughs> you did? This afternoon? Why not? I was so eager to show it off, I wore it down to the market. <laughs> you wore it? Oh, Liz, that isn't quite the thing to wear to the market. Well, I know I shouldn't have worn it shopping, but I just couldn't resist. <laughs> Didn't people stare at you? They couldn't keep their eyes off me. <laughs> I'll bet they couldn't. <laughs> oh, that cute little cashier wouldn't let me alone till I took it off and let her try it on. <laughs> you took it off? In the market? Don't worry, George. She was careful. <laughs> That's not what I was worried about. I, I hope you didn't catch cold. Cold? No. As a matter of fact, on the way home, I was so warm, I took it off and carried it over my arm. <laughs> I must be losing my 
1949, Lucy signed a one-film-per-year contract with Columbia. She made Miss Grant takes Richmond with William Holden and Fancy Pants with Bob Hope. Desi was still Hope's musical director, and his band was now making $12,000 per week for appearances. He also appeared in the film Holiday in Havana. On December 8th, Lucy made her television debut on Inside USA with Chevrolet on local KTTV. Desi soon joined her in an episode of Ed Wynn's TV program. With General Foods as sponsor of My Favorite Husband, the show slowly grew its audience as radio interest was moving over to TV. In June of 1950, Harry Ackerman, always one of Lucy's biggest fans, was named director of programming for CBS Hollywood. He immediately decided that My Favorite Husband was fit for television. Lucy was interested, under one condition. If she was going to come to the small screen, Desi needed to be her co-star. This time, she got her way. This is CBS, where you hear Lucille Ball and my favorite husband every Saturday on the Columbia Broadcasting System. When we were finishing My Favorite Husband, CBS wanted Lucy to do a television show. There was a lot of discussion at the time of it. Nobody would believe or accept and identify with a woman, who, American, who was married to a, a foreigner. And I think just the strength of Lucy's pulling power and performance overcame this, and they decided to take a chance. As a matter of fact, when the pilot film, which was a kinescope, was sent back to New York, the head of the program department, who since remembers the thing a little differently and claims that he loved it, you know, for the first moment he saw it, actually called up and he said, what are you sending me? This is the worst thing I've ever seen. How can I possibly sell that? It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Yes, it's the Gay Family Series starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Transcribed and brought to you by the Jell-O family of Red Letter Desserts. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tap. The uncle puddings. Yes, sir. And now Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper. What's the matter? Did you like my work? Oh. I'll, uh, I'll explain this to you. <laughs> During the 1949-50 radio season, network revenue dropped for the first time since 1933. Radio ratings had shrunk 30% in two years. The U.S. was in an economic recession, and television was becoming a serious threat. Over 100 TV stations were now on the air. Advertisers were learning that production costs for the new medium were much greater. NBC, CBS, and ABC used their radio profits to fund TV. On May 8, 1950, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz officially formed their own production company. They called it Desi Lou Inc. 
if the networks and agencies didn't believe in the couple. Maybe a paying audience would. So the same writers that were doing my favorite husband, Jessup and Heimer and uh, Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis, they, you know, kind of came up uh, and me with the music and the orchestra leader, and uh, then nobody wanted me to play Ricky. By nobody, you mean the, the heads of the network, I would guess? The network, the sponsor, nobody. Yeah. You know, they said, who the hell is going to believe this Baba Lou fellow is going to be married to this typical American girl, you know? Funniest part of it is that we had been married for 10 years right then, you know. So how was this thing finally resolved? How did you bump Mr. Denning out of the picture? You know, George M. Cohan always said that those people out there, the audience, they tell you what's good and what isn't, you know. So I told Lucy, said, maybe they're right. Maybe nobody will believe you and I work it together, you know. So in those days, I had the big band, and we used to do vaudeville, play the Paramount Theater, and they... So I said, well, the next time that I go on tour, why don't you come with me? We'll do a couple of numbers together and see what the audience thinks of us working together. We worked the Roxy here in New York, when we was still there, Chicago Theater. We picked about five or six, you know, cross-country places, and the audience were wonderful. And Mr. Paley, which is the head of CBS at the time, chairman of the board, he saw us on the stage and said, well, the audience seems to like them together, and they have been married for 10 years, or maybe they'll believe that they're not. <laughs> uh, the they don't give you enough credit. On June 2nd, Lucy and Desi's new act debuted at the Chicago Paramount Theater. It was a combination of vaudeville routine and song, Variety called it one of the best bills to play the house in recent months. The next week, they opened at New York's Roxy to rave reviews. In the early days, Desi was very uh, hardworking, conscientious. Didn't know, as we didn't, whether he could really do this kind of thing at all. But he's a very bright man and a shrewd man. And he caught on very well until today. I think that he's a, a fine producer and a very good director on his own right. There were some amusing, to me, professional jealousies. It took me a week before I could convince Desi to let Lucy's name be first on the credit. He just couldn't understand it. You know, why shouldn't he be first? And uh, I finally convinced him, I think, as I recall, on the basis of it was the gallant thing to do, you know, let the lady go first. And even then he came back and he said, well, I'll tell you, let's, let's make it alphabetical. <laughs> and he had a lot of obstacles to overcome. And the original film was sent back to New York, and Milton Beale of the advertising agency, which bought it, showed it to Rogers and Hammerstein. And they said, it's wonderful, the girl is great, but don't let the Cuban sing. So it was actually written into the contract that, that he could only sing if it was an integral part of the story. During the first year or so, we made it a point to make his song an important story. In other words, he would be singing and she would be trying to break into the act while he was singing so that he could get the songs on. There was more good news. While in New York, Lucy made arrangements for a pregnancy test under a false name. Now to the editorial room of the Jergens Journal and Walter Winchell. Somehow Walter Winchell still got the scoop. Lucy found out she was pregnant when tuning into his radio program. The couple renewed their marriage vows in a small ceremony on June 19th. In October, 
Cecil B. DeMille offered Lucy a part in The Greatest Show on Earth, but Harry Cohn wouldn't let her out of her contract with Columbia. Despite, Cohn offered Lucy a purposely bad film, The Magic Carpet, in which Lucy played an Arabian princess. She gladly took the role. The film was shot in five days, and Lucy was owed $85,000 for the one-film contract. Afterwards, she canceled all her commitments besides radio. They were now in serious negotiations for the yet-unnamed TV show. Jess Oppenheimer supported Desi, and CBS had a lot of faith in the director. We did the I Love Lucy pilot during the uh, last season on radio. She was six months pregnant at the time. We had a rush to get it done, so we moved right into a, a whole business that none of us knew the slightest thing about. Here I was producing a television show. I'd never worked one day in a movie studio and knew nothing about film. I went over to the laboratory and asked him to show me through, and in about two weeks I had to find out what the, all the technical processes and what each person does and what he's supposed to be responsible for, what all the different processes cost, and uh, it's amazing that it ever got on the air at all. Because we were going into an industry that was suddenly blossoming and none of the standards had been set at all. When we started Lucy, there was no coast-to-coast cable. And we had an awful time even selling them on the idea of taking it on film. They finally had to uh, put in the contract something about the film had to be equal in quality to the Amos and Andy program, which was the only other one that had been on film. At Christmas, when word got back to CBS that Ball and Arnaz were taking meetings with NBC... Harry Ackerman greenlit a series starring the couple. CBS gave Oppenheimer a 20% ownership in the oncoming comedy program. I started off with an idea that here's a man who had been in show business all his life who wanted to marry a girl who was far removed from him so he'd have a nice normal home life. And he didn't realize that he was marrying a girl who had never been in show business, always viewed it from afar and thought it was very glamorous and she wanted to marry somebody so she could get into it. But after very few shows, we found out that we were doing the same story every week where Lucy was trying to get into the act. So we had to just abandon that and go in other more normal domestic situations. But we came very close to getting trapped into something where we could have lost the audience completely. To keep Desi busy, in January, CBS installed him as MC for Your Tropical Trip, a radio music and game show on Sundays at 3.30. In February, Variety announced that the TV program would debut in the fall from Hollywood. It named Ralph Levy as program director. The couple was originally to be called Lucy and Larry Lopez. On March 2, 1951, Desi's 34th birthday, the I Love Lucy kinescope pilot was shot at Studio A in Columbia Square. Lucy was four months pregnant. And then finally I did the Lucy audition, which became I Love Lucy. And then I went on for five years after that with them which was a wonderful, rewarding experience, not only in terms of money, but in terms of confidence, which I really needed. Because basically, and I think this is probably true of most people in show business, whether they're writers or performers, it's still true with me, but to a lesser degree now. I was never sure that I could do it again. In other words, I was so happy that I was able to get through last week, and I doubted that I was that I could come up with the right kind of quality for next week. And I can see this in so many people today, Milton Burrow and Jerry Lewis. As long as they live, they're always going to have this same feeling, scared to death, that you never get a real solidity where you know that you can do it. And if you do, you, what you then do is not acceptable, really, to the public because it's arrogant. 
There's something about this which the public interprets as an eagerness to please and a hard-working eagerness, but which in reality is, is a desperate attempt to prove to yourself that you can do it, that you can still make people laugh. The Lucy situation helped me tremendously. But I must in all honesty say that every time a script is finished, I'm just delighted, and every time I have to start a new one without an idea for it, I'm in a state of panic. A second couple was added. They were the older landlord friends of the Ricardos, Fred and Ethel Mertz. Desi heard about an actress named Vivian Vance appearing in The Voice of the Turtle at the La Jolla Playhouse. Jess and Desi hired her on the spot. William Frawley, a veteran of over 100 films, was hired as Fred. The two talented supporting stars didn't like each other. Lucy felt it added a certain sense of realism to their stage quarrels. By March 7th, a kinescope of the pilot was ready, but the technology left a lot to be desired. The show was originally to cost $26,500 per episode. Don W. Sharp got the cold shoulder from agencies on Madison Avenue in a March trip for sponsorship. On March 31, 1951, the last episode of My Favorite Husband aired on CBS. Two weeks later, on April 12th, Lucy and Desi appeared as stars on suspense for an episode called Early to Death. Early to Death, and the performances of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. What'll happen to Duke? We'll go down with the plane. That's the same as murder. $300,000, I think it's worth it. Is Matt Evie one out? No, no, I'll get the money. You call in, then. Right, baby. N71533, calling Veracruz Radio, over. N71533, this is Veracruz Radio. Go ahead. Veracruz, we're over the mountains. My oil line is clogged. We're in trouble. Don't try to glide it through. Bail out. Okay? Over. Hello? 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 N71533, answer me. Baby. I got it, Ben. A full payroll. 300000 All right, turn around. I'll buckle a case into your parachute harness. We wouldn't want this to burn up, would we? You call in the Veracruz? Yeah, yeah, they got the idea. There you are. Come on, baby. You aren't scared to make the jump, are you? Scared? After all the planning we've done? Let's get out of this thing. We jumped together. I closed my eyes and counted just the way Ben had told me. And then I pulled the ripcord. once I was floating down to earth. It was all so easy. After a while, I was standing beside Ben and he was helping me out of my parachute harness. We both looked over at the same time. So long, Duke. Ben, do you think we should have strapped a chute on him in case there's... I left the fuel lines wide open. When they find that plane, it won't be anything else. Come on, Evie. We've got things to do. We buried the case full of money right there in the mountains, where we'd keep until we came back to pick it up, when things were safe. That's the way we'd planned it. Three days later, we staggered into a town called Akayuka, and made like the two survivors of a plane crash. They took us to the hospital in Veracruz, and we were treated for exposure.
Finally, on April 23rd, Philip Morris agreed to drop the Horace Height Show and sponsor I Love Lucy for one season at nearly $1 million. Trade papers announced the series would debut on October 1st. In early May, agency head Milton H. Bio phoned Jess Oppenheimer to ask when the Arnazes would be moving to New York. The sponsor wanted the show to be live and had no intention of allowing a kinescope. But Desi, Harry Ackerman, and Don W. Sharp thought the program could be filmed. Jerry Fairbanks had innovated a locked camera technique, and Al Simon a camera dolly system. Desi Lou hired him. Both Philip Morris and CBS initially balked at the extra cost. Desi convinced CBS to allow Desi Lu to produce the series by agreeing to take a pay cut, provided Desi Lu retained 100% ownership rights of the series. CBS agreed. I Love Lucy would be shot in Hollywood on film and in front of a live studio audience. Desi Lu would develop its own production unit in the summer of 1951. Well, the only was that did that in front of an audience. In front of an audience? With three multiple cameras. Sometimes you use four cameras, like you use three here. They had been doing them live, hadn't they? You were doing it on film? We always did it on film, mm -hmm. but in front of an audience. Right. We have never used kind of laughter. Yeah. <laughs> some of our laughter I hear some other shows. Now, is that true? I've heard yeah. that rumor before that the audience sounds from your program is still... Well, used. you know, you worked in front of an audience most of your life. And, you know, sometimes you get the regulars and you can detect the same laughter. Right. But Lucille's mother, you couldn't miss her laugh, did you? <laughs> And my assistant director, Jim Paisley, and you know, he was close like around here, you know, so not only did the audience microphone pick up his laugh, but our dialogue mic mm -hmm. pick up his laugh. So we had the dialogue, the laughter, the music, the applause, everything on the same track with all four cameras coordinating one soundtrack. You know, the first time anybody done that. And that's what made Desi Lu a big success. Yeah. That's In the midst of the careful planning, at 8.15 on the morning of Sunday, June 17, 1951, Lucille gave birth to a healthy daughter, Lucy Desiree Arnaz. Lucille remembered that the year surrounding the birth of Lucy was the happiest year of her marriage. Six weeks after giving birth, she went back to work. They needed to start filming in late summer to be on the air by October. They rely on a bevy of talented radio actors like Frank Nelson, Mary Jane Croft, Lawrence Dobkin, Hans Conried, and Herb Vigrant. You moved easily from radio oh, to television. The transition. Mm -hmm. Well, I was very lucky. You see, mm -hmm. most of us who had done all that radio in the early days of television, all of the producers and directors and writers of early TV were the uh, radio writers and producers mm -hmm. and directors. So I went right into I Love Lucy. Jess Oppenheimer was the producer. Madeline Martin and Bob Carroll were the mm -hmm. writers. They had written My Favorite Husband, which was the show that Lucy had done. Mm -hmm. The E. Varden show, the same guy who was directing that, who was directed an E. e. Varden show on, on you know. So all of those things. And so, I guess I made a very fortunate transition. I was one of the busiest guys in the early television days. They rehearsed for 12 hours per day. Then on the evening of Friday, August 15th, 1951, the bleachers at the Desilu studio filled up at 8 o'clock. Desi explained to the audience that they would be seeing a brand new kind of television show. Sitting in the stands that night were both of their mothers, the writers, Andrew Hickox, 
and a bevy of Philip Morris and CBS officials. To launch the series, the network had paid out over $300,000. They hoped the show would last long enough to pay back the advance. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. You know, Time Magazine asked me one time, what are you, if you had to split the percentage of the success of I Love Lucy between yourself and the actors and the actresses and the writers, how would you do it? Who would you give the credit to? I said, well, give Lucy 90% and split the rest between us. Yeah, she's a big talent, a big talent. No one like her, no one. <laughs> Morris, America's most enjoyable cigarette, presents Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz in I Love Lucy. Ladies and gentlemen. When the first episode of I Love Lucy aired on October 15, 1951, the sponsor network and even the crew were unsure if the series would work. Amos and Andy was the first TV show to be filmed, and NBC's public prosecutor used a three-camera technique, but filming with multiple cameras in front of a live audience had never been done. There were interesting production issues that had to be ironed out. An entirely new technique of using three cameras in front of an audience and putting it on film, which hadn't been done before. And we had directors of photography, for instance, who came from motion pictures, and even though the technical people in television told them how they had to expose and develop the thing. They continued to do it the way they did it in pictures. In pictures, if it looks good in a projection room, it's going to look good in every theater because the setup is exactly the same. But in television, the way to expose it so it will look best on television doesn't come out so well in the um, projection room. But the cameraman wants to look good for the producer and their ego got in their way. And show after show, I remember, where the guys would come out of the projection room saying, boy, that's the most beautiful stuff I ever saw. And then they come in the day after it was on the air, uh, they look like they've been shot. You know, they say, what happened? And they were accusing the networks of sabotage and so forth. Uh, 
Hello, I'm Ricky Ricardo, and I'm the guy who loves Lucy. The whole thing started 10 years ago. I had just come to this country from Cuba, and I didn't know much about your customs. The first girl I had a date with was Lucy. It was a romantic night. And after all, I had a reputation to live up to as a Latin lover, so <laughs> I kissed her goodnight. It was right then that she told me that under the Constitution of the United States, if a man kisses a girl, he has to marry her. <laughs> By the time I found out she tricked me, I didn't care. Because after all, if I hadn't married her, I would have married someone else. And Lucy's just like any other American girl who is pretty, charming, witty, and partly insane. She's always doing such crazy things. Take the other night, for instance. I came home at midnight from the Tropicana. That's the nightclub where I work. Now, some wives would be fast asleep in bed, but not Lucy. She invited our landlord, Fred Merce, and his wife, Ethel, who live on the floor below us, to come over for a little jam session. So naturally, being something of a singer myself, I joined in. You know, a little more practice and we could do singing commercials for television. <laughs> Gee, Ethel, you certainly play the piano wonderfully. Oh, thanks, Lucy. Hey, how about Sweet Sue? Yeah, that, that has a nice yeah. harmony, all right? Da-da, da-da, da-da. Wait a minute, Ethel. It's, uh, it's two o'clock in the morning. Well, what about it, honey? Yeah, yeah, two o'clock's a perfect time for Sweet Sue. Yeah, I mean, it's a little late. Won't the other tenants complain? About complain what? Complain about what, honey? About all the noise. Noise? We're not making noise, we're making music. Yeah, let them phone the landlord. I'm not home. Yeah. <laughs> I always forget that you're the landlord. Yeah. Come on. Besides, what's wrong with good friends harmonizing a little? That's what the world needs more of. You're right. Oh, it's so wonderful to have landlords like you two. <laughs> what a break for us to have tenants like you two. Well, okay, okay, sweet Sue. Yeah, let's go. Look at this place, Lucy. You've taken such good care of it, we could rent it tomorrow and not have to change a thing. Okay, okay, sweet Sue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know why, Ethel? It was in such wonderful condition when we moved in. Well, all right, all right, guys. Now, sweet Sue. Ta -da, ta -da, ta -da. You're the nicest tenant I ever had. And you're certainly the nicest landlady I've ever had. Man, this is the most sickening conversation I've ever heard. <laughs> you're so right. Oh, you two have no sentiment. I move that we dedicate the next number to our wonderful friendship. That's
Yes, you had a lot of fun, honey. Oh, I had such a good time tonight. I want to live in this apartment the rest of my life. Well, honey, I think that you and I and Fred and Ethel are fated to go through life together. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look. Ethel left her rings here. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, honey, she's absolutely right. People ought to do more singing in this world. That's right, honey. Every star above knows the one I love. Like it came from the Mertz apartment. Oh, no, honey, it couldn't be. No, I guess not. You live on the. Hello? Hello, Lucy. Hi, Ethel. What's, your, what's on your mind? What's going on up there, anyway? Oh, we're singing Sweet Sue. Want to come up for another chorus? Do you know what time it is? How do you expect anybody to get to sleep? Why, Ethel, what's the matter? You thought it was fine when you were up here. Well, I'm down here now, and I think it's lousy. <laughs> well, really, Ethel, how can you change in such a short time? Good night, Lucy. Good night. What's the matter with Ethel? She must have walked downstairs too fast and gotten the bends. <laughs> Well, she's a little grumpy because we're making noise. Well, I thought she was well, having... Well, so did I. She'll be over it in the morning. Come on, honey, let's go All to bed. Lucy and I decided to ignore the Mercer's phone call and get ready for bed. Now, this should be a fairly simple thing to do, but not with Lucy and me. We always argue about the temperature of the bedroom. Lucy, who is part polar bear, likes lots of fresh air. If she had her way, we could rent the bedroom out as a deep freeze. Now, like every normal person, I like to sleep in a room with the windows closed and the heat turned as high as it will go. You know, warm and cozy. As usual, the battle of the bloodstream began. Lucy put the window up. I put the window down. expect people to get me sleep. Well, I was only closing the windows. What, with a sledgehammer? <laughs> now listen, Fred. Listen my foot. Now let's have it quiet up there. <laughs> How do you like that? Let's have it quiet up there, he says. Some lousy landlords they are. <laughs> yeah. Nurse to the Mertz. Yeah. Well, good night, baby. Good night, honey. 
Jack. <laughs> I'll have you know these are real diamonds. 
Mrs. Ricardo, would you be so kind as to inform me just when we are to be deprived of your charming company? Very shortly. Good. Thank you. <laughs> My, it'll certainly be nice getting away from such disagreeable people. It certainly will. Would you like to give me the check for the next five months' rent now? Of course, I'd be delighted. What do you mean, the next five months' rent? Well, if you're leaving, you have to pay off your lease. Our lease? Yes, don't you remember? You begged me on bended knee to give you a lease. Just so that no one else could have this fantastically inexpensive, lovely apartment. Oh, you mean that one-sided, unfair, binding contract that we were forced to sign before you would grant us the privilege of moving into this broken-down hovel? <laughs> broken-down is right. Look at this place. It'll take the next five months' rent to redecorate. Redecorate? Yes. After we fumigate. <laughs> you can leave the check in my mailbox. <laughs> Honey, I don't seem to be oh, able to... Oh, shut up! <laughs> What's the matter with you? Oh, I'm sorry. Ethel was just up here and she made me so darn mad. What now? She says she, they're going to hold us to our lease. We have to give them five months' rent before we can leave. I guess we're stuck here. Well, now, that, uh, that all depends. On what? On whether we can uh, break the lease or not. Do you think we can? Mm, could be. What's on your mind? <laughs> we are going to become the two most unpleasant, disagreeable people nasty people in the whole world. But how? We'll force ourselves. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's see now. What can we think of that'll make them kick us out? <laughs> think nastier. We'll get it. Ladies and gentlemen, you can stop worrying about cigarette irritation and you can start smoking for pleasure. Pure pleasure and nothing but pleasure. Listen to My greatest accomplishment was that in those days you did not use cards. And to do that, when I look back, I don't know how I did it. But I had such fun making those shows that nothing can ever top it. Let me tell it to you. The best time is when you're working and you're happy, and we really had a ball. Used in the manufacture of all other leading cigarettes. The first season of I Love Lucy was such a success that CBS wanted a radio version. This pilot was recorded on February 27, 1952, using audio from the 18th episode, Breaking the Lease, which aired on February 11th. Desi was narrator and John Stevenson, the announcer for Philip Morris. you smoke two cigarettes a day or two packs a day? This one fact remains. In Philip Morris, you enjoy the one cigarette entirely free of a source of irritation used in the manufacture of all other leading cigarettes. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the plain and simple truth about Philip Morris' superiority. And that's why we say, you'll be glad tomorrow... You smoked Philip Morris today. 
And now back to I Love Lucy, starring Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz as Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. Well, after we decided to try and break our lease, Lucy and I spent the whole morning thinking of ways to annoy the Mercers. I had to go to rehearsal at noon, so I left Lucy in charge of Operation Nasty. <laughs> and I couldn't have left it in more capable hands. What a brain she has. If you ever need any good, clean, dirty work done, I've got just the kit. As you know, the Mercers live directly beneath us. And when I came home, I found Lucy stamping around the room in football shoes, throwing books on the floor, and generally making as much noise as she could. I got a 16-piece band. I'll blow the roof of the joint. Well, doesn't look like rain. Okay, fellas. Remember, this is to break the lease, so make it loud. One, two... She has three cameras. One is straight on, and the other two are coming into the sides. And in order to cut from camera A to camera C without a big lighting change, it had to be lit absolutely flat. And historically, in pictures, you light, as they call it, from the floor. You have a lot of lamps that sit on the floor, and you move them around. Your camera's in one place. There's no audience. And on this technique, we couldn't have anything standing on the floor because it would block the audience's view. As a matter of fact, the lights that, that hang down from up above couldn't hang too low because they blocked the audience's view. Then we early found out that the director would take his side cameras and put them in where he get just the shot he wanted, and the audience would be looking at cameramen's backs and nothing else because all the cameras would be blocking the action. So we had to put longer lenses on the side cameras and move them back to allow space in there for the audience to see. And just a whole lot of techniques like that that had to be worked out. And the very first Lucy shows, 
technically they were very bad, but luckily we had such tremendous impact as performance that it just didn't matter. On Mondays, the writing team would gather in Oppenheimer's office to discuss script ideas. Each plot idea started with a single sentence like, Lucy goes to work in a chocolate factory. Scripts were written eight weeks in advance of filming. That night, the latest episode would be filmed. On Tuesdays, the cast would assemble to read through the next week's show. The grip crew would begin to assemble the set. On Wednesdays, the cast rehearsed on set without a script. It was considered the most important rehearsal time. Thursday was lighting and full dress rehearsal day. And on Fridays, the writers wrapped up Monday's script. tonight. Ricky Ricardo in person, and they're selling tickets. Oh, no! <laughs> How do you like that? I'm going down there and give them a piece of my mind. Yeah. Oh, they're back in their apartment. It was too cold outside. Oh. They sold us the last ticket. Oh, they're back in their apartment, are they? Well, we'll dedicate the next number to Fred and Ethel Mertz. An old Cuban folk dance called El Breco the Liso. <laughs> El Breco the Liso? Yes. How does this old Cuban folk dance go? When Red Skelton accepted his award for excellence in comedy at the 1951 Emmys, he said, You've given this to the wrong redhead. I don't deserve it. You should go to Lucille Ball. Arnaz and Ball hosted the ceremony that year. The first season of I Love Lucy had a rating of 50.9. The show would win the Best Situation Comedy Emmy the next two years. Hey, somebody's at the door! Well, Fred and Nassau, come in, come in! The party's just getting good! Okay. Okay, you win. Here's your lead. <laughs> Well, the next few days we spent packing. Finally, on Saturday morning, I put the last dish in the last barrel and Lucy took the pictures off the wall. We were ready to leave the Mercer's apartment house forever. Is that all, honey? I think so. It'll certainly be good to get out of this joint, won't it? Yeah, do you tell Ethel we'll be moving today? Well, I haven't seen her since she brought up the lease. I mailed her a note telling her to come up and get the keys today. What shall I do about this? What is it? It's a picture of us and Fred and Ethel taken on Atlantic Cedar last summer. Oh. 
<laughs> we sure had a lot of fun there, didn't we? Yeah. What should I do, throw it away? Oh, no, no, I better pack it. Huh? Well, we can always cut them out with the scissors. <laughs> what are all these things here? Oh, there's some things I brought from Ethel. She has a lot of my things, too, if she hasn't sold them. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of tools that belong to Fred. Some of them we bought together. What shall I do with those? I don't know. Gee, it's amazing we could have been such good friends with a couple of stinkers. Yeah. <laughs> we sure had a lot of fun in the last nine years. Until they show their true colors. Yeah. Well, that just shows you how sneaky they are. Yeah. Hey, honey, you want some paper yeah. for that? Come in, come in, please. Oh, these are yours. Oh, thanks. Um, these are yours, I guess. Thanks. It's all right. Here's some things of yours that somehow got into my apartment. Thanks. There are some of your things that I managed to get hold of. <laughs> it's all there. You can count it if you like. Oh, well, that won't be necessary, Mrs. Mertz. I trust you. <laughs> you do? Uh... Uh, uh, look, uh, Fred, uh, it doesn't matter to me, you know, but uh, for some crazy reason or other, I, I think Lucy wants to stay. Don't you, Lucy? Uh... Well, it doesn't matter to me either, but it's uh, up to Ethel. What, what do you say, honey? The girl said, <laughs> I guess we're staying, eh? Yeah. <laughs> only, only this time I want a long lease so that we don't ever get kicked out. <laughs> well. Fred. Well, what do you know? I just happened to have a new lease already made out. <laughs> CBS aired Isle of Lucy on Monday evenings at 9 p.m. against what used to be their centerpiece, the Lux Radio Theater. It was decided that with radio drama on the way out, the Lucy crew had enough on its hands with TV. The radio version of the series was never produced. 179 episodes of Isle of Lucy were made, as well as the pilot, Christmas special, and 13 Lucy Desi comedy hours. For your own protection, for your own greater smoking pleasure, enjoy the one cigarette entirely free of a source of irritation used in all other leading brands. You'll be glad tomorrow you smoked Philip Morris today. I love 
Lucy, starring Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, featured Vivian Vance and William Frawley as Ethel and Fred Mertz. Tonight's program was written by Jess Oppenheimer, Madeline Pugh, and Bob Carroll, Jr., and edited by Sterling Tracy. John Stevenson speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. But who dreamed that Superman would become a cult (laughs) that I Love Lucy will never stop running because there was some chemistry there that hardly ever happens, you know. I don't know that it's ever happened again. A program like that, I think, becomes a part of your your life. Your life. You see? Yes, but aside from that, the the I Love Lucy shows were comedy classics, and it was something to do with the writing and Lucy and Desi, you know. They're fabulous to look at today. Where you look at some old I Love Beavers, or or Leave It to Beavers, which are great and are still running and they're fine, but I mean, they don't have the the, the Mm -hmm. real, because people are nuts today about I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy set a standard for television sitcoms that is still emulated today. It has aired in reruns continuously for more than 60 years. In 1957, CBS bought back the rights to all the episodes of I Love Lucy from Desilu for nearly $5 million. During the first three seasons that I Love Lucy aired on TV, Mondays at 9 p.m., opposite on radio, the Lux Radio Theater's rating dropped from 17.9 to 6.2. All of the big money left for TV. By 1956, Gunsmoke's dual broadcast pulled a combined rating of 6.5. It was the highest on radio. The medium became an experimental landscape as the Radio Western grew up. In 1958, these experiments led to one of the most beloved short-lived Westerns of all time. And it's the only set of four episodes with a recurring plotline that we'll focus on in Breaking Walls episode 101. Once again, I met a lady named Bell and learned about a gentleman named Archie McLaughlin. This taking place in Deadwood, Dakota Territory. Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. In just a moment, we will bring you this latest report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Throughout the week on CBS Radio... Walter Cronkite and Bill Downs report the business... There was a thing that was happening at that time, which I don't know whether anybody knows about, and maybe not even you, but... It's information that can help consumers save money. At that time, stereo was just beginning to show its head. Now, Have Gun Will Travel, Gun Smoke, the radio shows that did exist at that time, were getting ready to produce radio drama 
in stereo. But because the decision had been made to, uh, to get rid of, of radio drama, that too naturally disappeared because the whole concept of radio drama was destroyed and along with it any new idea that might be uh, in waiting for us and that was stereo it's a pity i like um, stereo drama and radio stereo would be fantastic Next time on Breaking Walls, we focus on Frontier Gentlemen, written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellison, starring John Daner as J.B. Kendall. And we'll listen to all four episodes centering around the saga of Bell Siddons. The reading material used in today's episode was The I Love Lucy Book by Bart Andrews, Love Lucy by Lucille Ball, On the Air by John Dunning, Desilu by Coyne Stephen Sanders and Tom Gilbert. The Complete History of the Most Popular TV Show Ever by Michael McClay. Forever Lucy by Joe Morella. The Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg. As well as several articles from Broadcasting Magazine and Radio Daily from between 1938 and 1951. On the interview front... Lucille Ball was interviewed by Dick Cavett in 1970 and 71, by Johnny Carson in 1974, and by Joan Rivers in 1984. Desi Arnaz was interviewed with Bob Hope by Johnny Carson in 1976, and by David Letterman in 1983. Jess Oppenheimer was interviewed in 1961. This interview came courtesy of Greg Oppenheimer, his son, and I Love Lucy, The Untold Story. Greg also provided My Favorite Husband outtakes. Chuck Shaden spoke to Gail Gordon, Jack Haley, and Herb Vigrant. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Spurvac was with Madeline Pugh Davis and Bob Carroll Jr. on March 12, 1994. Hans Conried was interviewed by Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. William Paley gave a speech while receiving an award on November 20, 1958 and spoke in memoriam of Lucille Ball in 1989. And Connie Boswell was interviewed in 1961 by Lee Phillip. Selected music featured in today's episode was Black Coffee and Fly Me to the Moon by Julie London, The Look of Love by Billy May, and Cuban Pete by Desi Arnaz. Special thanks to our sponsors, The Fireside Mystery Theater, Radio Drama Revival, and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting for almost 20 years. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin of Spurdvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 101 will be a quadruple frontier gentleman feature on the saga of Bell Siddons. 
This episode will be available beginning March 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And if you got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until March 1st, 2020, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 100, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.